Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Through the Years, episode 48, the uh, podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. Uh, I'm Trevor Dame, as always, the other voice you're going to hear is the other half of the show, Matt Feuerstein, and in case you probably already can tell, but if you can't, the show's probably going to, it is definitely going to start a little bit differently uh, this episode. Um, Matt and I talked about this last night, and it's something I think we're both a little con- you know, it's something we wish we didn't have to do because obviously a lot of crazy bad things have happened in the world recently, especially with uh, the senseless murder of George Floyd and just the protests that are going on and all the issues that are being brought up because of this. And it's weird because I think Matt and I, from talking last night, we both agree. One of the things that's really good about the show we like is that it's uh, it could be an escape for people from all the horrible things in the real world. And I know in my life, in, just personally, um, when I've had uh, some real bad, you know, like tragedies in my life, like I've turned to my favorite podcast about very frivolous, stupid topics, including pro wrestling, as an escape from the depressing things in the real world. So there's part of me that really doesn't like having to talk about um, depressing issues on something that might be an escape for people. In fact, I know it's an escape for some people because over the years we've had at least a couple of people say, Hey, this helped, you know, I use this when there was a bad thing going on in my life. And I listened to this, you know, we're, you know, we're not voices of wrestling or even, or Bruce Pritchard or anything like that level listeners, but we have some listeners. I can admit that even as the most self deprecating podcast in the, on the planet. And, I don't want to take that away from you guys, but I just feel like it would be weird if we'd left things unsaid, if we didn't talk about this. I feel like everyone should try and talk about this in whatever forum they have. And what I can promise you is, you know, this is the first time we've done this in 48 episodes. You probably won't do it again. You know, hopefully we won't have a need to do it again in another 48 episodes. And after we talk a little bit about it, which we haven't planned what we're going to say, I've thought about things we're going to say, but it probably won't be very long. And then we're going to do a regular show just like we always do. And you, we can all have fun together for two or two to three hours talking about the world of people pretending to fight each other. And we can forget about how bad this year has been so far, but I think we should do talk a little bit about this first. So, um, Matt, it's been, uh, it's been a pretty bad few weeks. I feel like the last three or four episodes, we've always, we keep saying, boy, things keep getting crazier since the last time. And I feel like we should stop saying that because maybe we're bringing it on because I don't know how it keeps getting crazier and worse, but here we are. Yeah, I, I um, you know, it's true um, that we don't have as many listeners as Bruce Pritchard, which, you know, leads me to say, like, I should probably just come out and admit I am Bruce Pritchard. Like, that's actually who I really am. So maybe knowing that will get us more listeners and they could hear all the important things that we have to say. Um, but yeah, it's me. Hi, I'm Bruce. Uh, Hi, Bruce. Motherfucker. Um, <laughs> See, so you get think it. About that, Dave Meltzer. Bruce. It's it's two letter. It's two layers because I'm being Bruce Pritchard imitating Jim Cornette. And speaking of racism, um, the <laughs> <laughs> sorry, see, I sorry, I know I'm 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 trying I'm making light of something that's very very serious, and I apologize. Um, but I, um, you know, we all have to uh, do do things in our way. Um, so I guess if I'm going to comment on this, the first thing I'll say, of course, is Black Lives Matter. 
and um, I hope that you know we're all on the same page about that. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I live here in New York, where um, we've had a curfew now for the past few days. I um, I'm skeptical of curfews. I uh, I feel like they give the police uh, an excuse and undue authority to terrorize people who are being peaceful. Um, or especially when some curfews lately seem to be announced either right before or even after the time they're starting. Like- yes, that has not happened here, but I have seen that around the country. Um, obviously, um, you know, we have people out in the streets demanding justice for George Floyd, justice for Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, you know, just one horrible story of, um, you know, murder of african-american men and women um by police and otherwise over the past uh few weeks um you know and you combine that with all of us being stressed um about being in the middle of a an unprecedented pandemic um and you know i feel like this was uh this was eventually going to happen um you know now i guess is is when it is is you know george floyd obviously was the was the was the match? I don't know what's the, for the that lit the fire. I guess would you might say it's the flashpoint of yeah, the spark that lit you know whatever yeah, you know it's yeah. been building as for decades and decades. Before we started recording, I think they mentioned that the other um, the other police officers that were involved in uh, his murder were uh, you know that were you know basically um, bystanders or not even bystanders but basically accomplices. However you want to say it. Um, however it looked, um, they were, um, you know, that they were all, uh, charged with crimes. Um, at this point, I feel like the situation has gone beyond that and that's not going to be enough to quell the protests. I, um, you know, I, I admire the protesters and I hope everyone stays safe. I, uh, you know, they've, they've been very brave, um, putting themselves in harm's way. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I hope everyone stays safe. I, um, you know, I've been... We've been lear- hearing about this same story, this police brutality um, against African Americans. You know, I've been learning about this stuff since I was born. Uh, this was going on before my parents were born, certainly way, way before that. Um, I sometimes feel hopeless about it because, um, and this is me as a white person, you know, I feel hopeless and, you know, I, I feel like, I feel guilty for feeling hopeless because I feel like, you know, if other people, especially African Americans and people of color, can feel hope for you know enough to get out there and fight um, and and protest and demand their human dignity and their rights and their freedom, like the least I can do is feel hopeful that things can change. But it's hard when you realize that this same story has been happening over and over and over and over again. I was thinking about like. You know, just like some of the things that happened in the '60s, whether they be the uh, you know the uprisings after um, you know in Watts in 1965 after Martin Luther King was killed, you know some of the peaceful marches, some of the less peaceful marches, and you realize if you went and told those people at the time that we'd be doing this right now, 40, 50 years later, actually more than 50 years later, um, you know I feel like it would be heartbreaking to a lot of people, and I also feel at the same time like a lot of them would not be surprised. Right, that like this, like this, just the history just repeats itself. You know, time is a vicious cycle. I don't know, um, you know, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I want to be hopeful, um, but the best uh, you know we could do is just 
support each other, have, you know, have each other's backs, have the backs of, you know, black people around the world, people of color in general, people who are oppressed in general, especially those of us who, you know, are in the privileged positions, you know, I, um, you know, all of that stuff. So that's generally how I feel um, about that. I'm sure once you say your piece, I will I have more to add, but it's kind of hard to collect my thoughts yeah. about everything. Yeah, and it's tough for us to speak on this because we're both 30-something white people. I mean, you're at least an American. I'm not even an American. I'm a Canadian. But, I mean, racism, you know, it, it, it is not non-existent where I live. It's not non-existent anywhere and I just agree with everything you have to say. Um, I've thought the last day, I haven't written this in one of the only things in life I don't take notes for, but I thought that would be kind of weird. I have written some thoughts about racism a couple days ago that are a lot kind of more cynical and angry. They're on my Patreon, but they're, they're completely for free. So if you want to read that for some reason, it would be www.patreon.com slash Mecca, Mecca, no space, M-E-C-C-A, twice in a row, that's it. And uh, I believe the article is called something like The Selfish Reason to Not Be Racist because I just felt like the non-selfish reasons weren't getting through to people. So I thought I'd be a little more optimistic here. Maybe not even optimistic, but just not so dour. I And I thought about what I want to say. So what I'm going to say is – um. I've, I've, I've sp- spoken a little about this on Twitter and other places, but I'm going to go into it deeper here. Um, I think empathy is one of the most important things in life. I feel like empathy, I, I feel like racism and discrimination of all forms is based on fear of the unknown. It's, it's when people don't, when people, when people see something that is different from what they know and what they experience, a lot of people, I would say the majority of people just go, oh, it's different. That's interesting or cool even. But there's always way too many people, even if it's a minority, that um, see things that are look different or act different or are from a different place or have different beliefs and they start to fear it because they don't understand it. And they start – and people, once they fear something long enough, they get angry. They want to control it or destroy it and – I feel like empathy is the antidote to that because when you truly empathize with somebody else, when you think about their experience and you seek to understand them, if you're successful in that, all of a sudden, once you understand someone, it's hard to hate somebody. If you really understand their experience, their lives, where they're coming from, why they're different from you in ways minor and major. And empathy is so hard to have because most of us, have really tough lives. Oh, it doesn't matter who we are. You know, even the average boring ass life has its share of difficulties and hardships and it, it takes effort. And the last thing most of us want to do when our, when we have free time in our day, when we've done for, when we have an hour, when we're done dealing with our own problems is imagine the, and learn about the problems of people that are completely different than us, because if we're successful, it's going to make us more depressed and more angry, but and, and I can understand why in a world, especially this world right now where we've got so much crap going on, why it's really hard to be empathetic. But I'm going to ask everybody just to be empathetic, to take a couple minutes to imagine the people that are not like you. And some of our listeners aren't going to have to imagine what it's like to be a minority. In you know, uh, and um, so I'm just gonna 
ask you to think about something for a couple of minutes here. I'm going to just uh, go through something I've been thinking about. So this is something I looked up. I actually did do research on that. This on this even this mat I did research on because I remember <laughs> I, I remembered a stat from years ago, and I wondered if they had updated it. So Gallup polls every few years does a thing where they ask um, people, I'm going to look, I, I have the link loaded up, so I'm going to read the exact question. They ask this question every few years. So this is the question Gallup polls asks a group of Americans every few years. They go, um, if your political party nominated a generally well-qualified person for president who happened to be blank, would you vote for that person? So they ask this question, and in the blank, they give you a bunch of different things. So for black people, in, 19, in 2015, 92% of people said they would vote for a black person. That means 8% wouldn't. Now, in 2019, that's improved to 96%, so now we're down only 4%. But um, some other stats, in 2019, 95% of people wouldn't uh, would vote for Catholics, 5% wouldn't. 5% wouldn't vote for Hispanics, 6% wouldn't vote for women, uh, 7% wouldn't vote for Jewish people, 20% uh, wouldn't vote for an evangelical Christians, 24% um, wouldn't vote for gay or lesbians. And keep in mind, remember what this question is saying. This question is saying, if your political party, the political party you like, nominated a generally well-qualified candidate for president— would you support them if they were whatever this thing is? And people say no to that still now. So I'm going to just average out those top few things. Just imagine, because one thing I am seeing so much of, which I hate online, you know, we saw Jackson Riker posted, uh, the WWF or WWE wrestler posted some comments and people found some of his older comments where he said something to the effect of black people should realize how good they have it because, uh, you know, look at uh watch 12 years a slave and realize how good you have it by comparison today and you know we've seen a lot of people Oof, say, well, i missed that yikes y yeah and uh there's been people that have been you know people that said you know oh race how racist can the world be when there was a black president or you know we're way less racist than we used to be or i don't know a racist so how bad could it be so i just want <laughs> people to imagine for <laughs> a second Sorry. Imagine if we. No, it's okay. I, I mean, we need to laugh right now. Hopefully, there'll be a few laughs in the regular show. But my thing, my little exercise is empathy. Is just imagine, let's say you're part of a demographic where five. That seems to be around the average, where five percent of people are racist against you. That's you might say, Trevor. That's not much people, and it is in in some senses, in some schemes. That is, that's one in twenty people. But imagine if in your daily life, when you're even going shopping, imagine every day of your life, when, whenever you are. You have to know in the back of your head, one in 20 people think you're less than them and they don't even know you. Um, I hate, imagine like the, the, imagine the paranoia that would bring on the justified paranoia. Imagine how you could never feel completely comfortable. Um, I hate the phrase white privilege, not because it's not true, but because I feel like a lot of people that need to hear that when they hear the word privilege, you know, we, we, we kind of just put in our head privilege means a really good thing and a lot of white people i feel like when they hear that they have white privilege they go my life sucks like what are you saying i'm getting a privilege for being white like i don't get any check for being white but i think what people need to re I, I wish they used a different word to describe it because you people that are white have horrible lives i mean like i'm a testament to that you know being white doesn't mean that you can't be poor or unlucky or have be the subject of abuse or tragedy or you know if you're 
you can still be in a minority even when you're white. You can be subject to sexism or or um, sexual orientation discrimination or discrimination against a disability or so many things. But there is a privilege white people have, and that is in my life, and I'm sure your life, Matt, although you're Jewish, so people know you're openly Jewish, as we saw in that Gallup poll stat, there is discrimination against that. But I – That darn – that darn 7%. In my life, I never have to uh, – whenever someone is a jerk to me in life or or treats me badly or gets mad at me, I never have to assume it's because of my race. I assume that they are either a jerk or in a bad mood or they're judging me on the content of my character, on who I am, not what I am. As a white person, that is our privilege. We get to – we get to um, just take that for granted, and everyone should take that for granted. That shouldn't be a special thing. It doesn't feel special to us white people because it shouldn't be special. But yet other people don't get that. So I want you just for a couple minutes in your life, just think about a world where you can't take that for granted, where there's one in 20 people everywhere you go. And having to realize that probably means there's one in 20 cops. There's one in, you know, having to know one in 20 times you get served at a restaurant. There, It's probably made by, you know, served to you by someone, again, who doesn't think you're as good as them, who doesn't think maybe you're even as human as them. And if you can think about that for a couple minutes and you then don't sympathize with what is going on in the streets right now by people who have seen this for generations, who feel like they can't just let the system try and fix itself because the system is broken and corrupt and has failed them too many times. Or to tell people that, yes, progress is happening, it's slow, but it's happening, so just be patiently wait when generations have seen this. Just have more sympathy for those that are being per- that are reacting in anger to generations of persecution than ha- than sympathy for the people that are doing the persecuting that's that's that that's my suggestion and that, that that's all i really have to say uh, you know, I that's you know it's beautiful. I love you know I love the appeal to empathy. I think empathy is really important. But I think this is why I feel like I'm probably more cynical than you about this. I think it's about you know I think racism is a lot more than you know. I think that you there. I think racism in a lot of ways is about that privilege. You know, more than just understanding the other person, it's about the desire to be above somebody else. Um, like. Um, the whole concept of whiteness is exists sort of in opposition to the people who aren't, right? Like that's sort of how it was constructed, you know. And it's maybe maybe I feel this way more because I'm an American, and like racism is at such a core founding principle of the country. Um, you know, that did you did you? I don't know if you got a chance to read the 1619 Project um, in the New York Times last year. Nicole Hannah Jones, uh, you know, got a Pulitzer for it. Um, but there's so, there's so much racism at the core of our founding, you know, to the point where they basically had to write racism into our laws in order to justify the ownership of human chattel of slaves in America. Um, basically, saying you know you know like trying basically codifying the idea that African Americans were inferior, um, and you know because you you can't own people if they are equal to you, right? So. Um, so it, that's such a bedrock founding idea that I feel like it's going to take such structural 
you know, awakening for people to really understand that that's what's been going on. You know, this, this, uh, you know, theft of wealth from the black community going back to the founding of the country to many hundreds of years before that, right? The, ba- the country was sort of built on their labor. Um, and, you know, then we get into the Jim Crow era, we get into redlining, you know, we get into um, se- segregation, legalized segregation, school segregation, uh, economic segregation. So there's so many issues at play in racism that I think even changing people's hearts and minds, we need to go further than that because we also need to change the system that we live in. And people need to, you know, some of us, you know, there are obviously, you know, when we think about things from a class perspective, people of every race are oppressed by the system that we live in, right? Like whether it's, um, whether you want to call it capitalism or, um, you know, whatever, you know, the, the way that, you know, the system that we live in basically um, where the, the rich have, so much more than everyone else and people sort of have to live under that thumb but then imagine the intersectionality of somebody also having to be oppressed because of their race on top of that i think that's kind of what you're referring to when you talk about privilege right this idea that we're all um you know we all can be oppressed in some way shape or form um and certainly there are plenty of white people that are but then you add in that extra layer where, you know, there are certain groups of people that society always wants to keep at the bottom. Because if they're at the bottom, that means you're not at the bottom. And that's kind of what I think about. So, like, the structural changes that are needed are economic. They involve the police and how the police approach their jobs, you know, what we how we constitute what police do. Um, they involve, they, you know, they involve the way we educate our people. Um, you know, so I think changing people's attitudes about race is one important step and having empathy is essential. I just, I just am worried about how we're going to do all the other stuff we need to do. Yeah. I mean, it's tough because, um, you know, we're not going to see an end. I'm pretty confident saying we're not going to see the end of racism in our lifetimes. And I think all the best we can hope for is, is small, like continual progress if we work incredibly hard, maybe. And even that comes in the form of, I guess not continual, it comes in, comes in the form of like two steps forward and one step back over and over again. And uh, Yeah, like, like I said, I feel bad being the one to, you know, lecture about this just because I am who I am. Like, you know, I'm a white guy, um, you know, in America, grew up, you know, middle class still you know have a middle class job you know i'm not i'm certainly not a victim of this i can only talk about what i observe you know what i notice you know i um i do just for my part you know um i would advocate anybody who wants to give um you know donate to you know some of the bail funds going on around the country you know you know i you know you don't have to b- agree with uh, our beliefs or our politics but if you do um i think those that's a good way if you're not someone who's going to be on the front lines marching protesting um you know uh, advocating for change in the legal sense and the political sense you know giving money to some of there you know there's already um aggregators that will split your donation among bail funds around the country um, you know, you give money in honor, support of the family of George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or, uh, you know, anybody like that. It's, um, you know, there, there are ways, there are things that you can do. Um, certainly won't end racism. It certainly won't 
fundamentally change the structure of white supremacy in America or anywhere in the world for that matter but um, something small that you can do if you can, if certainly if you can afford it certainly don't give what you can't afford I, I'm not advocating that um, you know I'm fortunate enough that I could give a little something um, but I don't know uh I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I feel, you know, sometimes I feel, sometimes I feel like I have a lot to say, then other times I feel like I'm completely at a loss for words. I, um, you know, I think just as as a white person in America, you know, I've always felt this way, but, you know, I think we can, you know, white people, we can all be better. We can all be better allies. You know, we can stand up for what's right. We can put our bodies on the line in ways that maybe we haven't. You know, I'm maybe speaking just – I'm not telling anybody what to do, but I know I could. Um, you know, sometimes your body is the, is the most important thing you can, can give and certainly your time and if you can, your money. Um, we all have our own struggles in life. So it's hard to give time for someone else's. But if this is not your struggle and you can give time to, uh, to make it yours, I don't know. Maybe consider it. I think that's a great note to end this talk discussion on, which is just, uh, yeah, they're uh, kind of going full circle back from the part, the start where you were talking about feeling hopeless. I would, I would just offer that I felt, I have felt hopeless at times during this week too, but there's, whether you have hope or not, there's still only one thing to do, which is to fight, to change things the way you, because the alternative is to just suffer. So, I mean, there's there is nothing we can do but fight back. And as you, I think, really eloquently put, there are so many ways you can do it. You can do it if you have money. You can donate to a very. There are so many good causes out there. Um, if you have time, you can donate as a volunteer in so many good causes. You can just try and talk to people about. You, not let the your. You, don't take for granted that your beliefs are shared by everyone you know, or that people just know what you believe. You know that's part of what I'm trying to do here is don't let the good things you believe be unsaid you know set just make sure that's more of that is in the world and you know there so there's so many ways and yes I don't think we're gonna be able to vote our way out of this problem but there are certainly candidates that are more sympathetic to social change than others so there's so many things you can do some cost money and time some really don't well, I guess they all cost a little bit of time, but everyone can do something. And um, doing something not only makes the world better, I find in my experience, doing something, even a little thing, usually makes you feel better. So selfishly, even just do that to make yourself feel better. Like we're doing right now by uh, being two white guys uh, musing on the racial issues in the world today. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Matt, uh, let's we can move on to a happy, well, not happier subject. I was going to make a joke and then I decided to bail on it halfway through because there's one other thing. Before I promise, we will do a regular show. It will hopefully have some laughs to be had. But and um, this has been a horrible month, and since we've last recorded, there have been a ton of tragedies in wrestling. Uh, Shad Gaspard, the former WWE wrestler, he uh, drowned un- tragically. I mean. All death to me is tragic. Uh, Hannah Kimura committed suicide due to some bullying online. Um, Danny Havoc, we just learned recently, passed away, and uh, he and uh, finally Larry Zonka, who not the famous pro athlete as he was 
people asked him a million times, but the famous wrestling recapper who just seemingly recapped everything, just, I don't know when that guy slept, uh, he also passed away. And I think one thing, you know, it's always a tragedy when people die. I think the one thing these four people seem to have in common is pretty much everyone that knew them seemed to be saying the same thing, which is basically like, fuck what these guys like did in wrestling or, or around wrestling. Like these were just great people. Like, let me tell you how great, which is not something you always see. You I mean pretty much when someone dies, you always see like people trying to speak well of them, but you usually, I don't know if it's ever this universally personal and positive. And, um, in Larry's case, you know, I can't pretend that I knew him. You know, I read his work. He likes some of my tweets. I like some of his. So that's, you know, the modern level of interaction on the internet in this world where you don't really know someone, but you've kind of interacted with them. But I'll just say in, you know, in addition to all the other causes you could ask, uh, donate for, if this one hits home to you, there, his family has started a GoFundMe. Uh, Larry leaves behind a wife and children. And that would be at www.gofundme.com slash F slash Larry mania dash living dash I mean, not yeah, dash on dash in dash his dash girls. I'm sure if you just Google Larry Zonka, um, GoFundMe, it'll be far easier for you to find, but I thought I'd include that just in case. So there's another option for helping people that really need it. And we really want you to give away your money this month, but they are for good causes. Yes, and again, I we realize it's tough for everybody, and especially especially right now, like this is this is the worst time for um, people to be asking you for money, and we are certainly not asking you for personal. Just saying, if you have money to give away, and you know these might be some good places to give it. Yes, and the least we can do, I guess, is at least let you know they're out there. But with yes. that. Finally, we just do the plug for the old show, the Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. So many great shows. Um, there's a recent one that only has a few episodes called Yours, Mine, and the Truth. And they just put out episode six on Owen Hart and Stampede Wrestling, which I think that's – I always love when people do shows on wrestlers everyone knows, but like the less talked about part of their career, obviously, because everyone will point to Owen Hart's WWF work. But I think that's really cool to do an episode on Stampede. Obviously, a lot of talk about Owen lately on another anniversary of his death, because again, what a fun month. And the uh, the documentary episode of uh, Dark Side of the Ring that just came out about his life. And uh, yeah, so there's that. And uh, I always like to throw in a plug occasionally for... Our old friend Chad Campbell, who was one of our early supporters of our show, and remind you that he has a podcast where he and JT, JT Rosero are reviewing uh, the Monday Night Wars every week. And, you know, Chad's one of like, the classic legends of the old review podcast. So that's called Wrestling Warzone. It's on a site called the North-South Podcast Connection. So that is all the plugs. That was all the talk about how horrific the world is. Two 30-something white guys telling you what's going on. Um, we are finally now, Matt, we can just do what we normally do. For two or three hours, we can pretend nothing else exists except this wonderful world of Ring of Honor. Um, yeah, man, nothing bad ever happens in Ring of Honor. <laughs> Um, so there actually was some news between the last show and the show we're covering in this episode, Glory by Honor 3, and some kind of funny stuff. So first off, this is just an interesting little reminder of the time where we were in at this point. This is from The Observer. 
Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky's first shows as booker for FIP in Florida are September 24th and September 25th in Tampa at the Sun, Sun Dome Corral with a 16-man tournament with some Ring of Honor wrestlers as well as AJ Styles, Gangrel, Just Incredible, and several Florida-based wrestlers. So for those who don't know, who don't know their history of this, um, FIP, Florida-based promotion. And around this time, uh, Gabe started booking there too, and we would see, we'll see some crossover between the two federations. A lot of Ring of Honor wrestlers going there. Uh, Gabe making it almost like kind of like a B level Ring of Honor in some ways. Like it, it was different than Ring of Honor, but you know it, it became more of a serious kind of we're trying to get people from around the world to buy the DVDs type promotion with uh, a lot of the same talent. And it's interesting to be reminded that AJ Styles was actually working for a Gabe run promotion, you know, months before he'd be allowed to, or open to doing it in a ring of honor again. Yeah. I haven't watched many of the FIP shows from that era, but I've seen some and, um, you know, you could tell it's sort of like Gabe just really trying to do a different style of booking, right? Like that's sort of his, his whole thing. Like there's, they want it to be more like quote Southern, but, you know, those shows, a lot of them are pretty empty, and it's hard not to notice that as well. You know, you got these guys that are big, big, big stars, at least in my mind, as even at the time. Like, they were big stars to me, and they're wrestling in front of essentially nobody. And, you know, it just shows running indie wrestling is hard. Yeah, it's funny how different, how much things change in like a year's time. Because I remember, I think in a late 2003, I, when we were covering, I think around that time was Ring of Honor's first double shot. Like Gabe was doing, I think an interview with the Torch saying like, you know, I didn't get enough time to, uh, like I, I felt like I didn't quite put enough work into one of the two shows of the double shot on the production and the backstage stuff because it was so much busier doing like a double shot. And now jump to one year later, and not only is Ring of Honor now going to frequent regularly do double shots, he's now booking a whole second promotion. So it shows like, you know, and certainly he adjusted, but it shows like how much his workload changed to the point where a year earlier he was like, wow, doing two shows in a weekend is a real increase in the workload and the stress to now that's a regular thing and I'm going to book a second promotion. Like, Aha. So that's – more- no, I was going to say, so that's why he didn't have backstage promos on the Death Before Dishonor shows. <laughs> he was preparing for FIP, booking that uh, that match where Punk and Homicide had the street fight that got into the strip club, that infamous match. I think that's the thing most people remember FIP for, which might be unfortunate. I don't know. Um, or fortunate. It depends how you feel about that match, yeah. Um, another story from The Observer, and Matt, I, don't, I didn't know this ever happened. This is just kind of a crazy when I read it when I was doing the research it made me go what the fuck this is also from the observer CM Punk pulled himself off a September 10th booking for Stars and Stripes Championship Wrestling after being asked by promoter Carmine Sabia if Rob Feinstein could work as his manager Feinstein said he had turned down the spot as well. Feinstein's first major appearance was at the Mid-Atlantic Convention, where nobody said a word about him being there, at least to his face, and he's going to start attending indie shows regularly from this point to try and turn around the RF video company. Matt, I never knew this. I can't believe someone, after all Punk had said, after all that had just happened, what at the time period we're talking about, someone's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to book a show. I'm going to book CM Punk on my show, and I'm going to book Rob Feinstein to be his manager. Like, what the fuck? Like, that had to be just, like, a literal a stunt booking up. Let's see if I can get away with this, and let's see if people will watch if it happens. Like, what the fuck are you thinking? Do you think CM Punk even remembers this? Uh, I, I don't know, but, I mean... 
does WWE backstage take call-ins? Because <laughs> we could ask. Renee Young, if you're a deep vein thrombozo, um, you know, a fan of the show for our more recent listeners, that's what we call them. Um, please ask Punk if he remembers when Stars and Stripes Championship Wrestling booked Rob Feinstein to be his manager and he had to back out. Oy. Um And finally, our last little story between the last show and this one. Finally, also from The Observer, I swear to God I read more than just The Observer, but New Japan dropped its New Japan USA show after just a few weeks on KVMD-TV, Channel 23 in Southern California. Simon Anoki, the New Japan USA Vice President of Operations, claimed the show accomplished its purpose of letting people in Los Angeles become aware that they had a dojo. Dave writes, well... That's a new one for losing TV so quickly. It had been a mess with time switches and frequent reruns, and the episodes of the show I saw spent more time putting over Ring of Honor than anything else. I mean, it was bizarre. So, yeah, uh, uh, during this time, there, there was a, uh, a L.A. dojo for New Japan Pro Wrestling, and Samoa Joe was one of the trainers there, I, and I think Rocky Romero was. I think Punk showed up there sometimes. I think Danielson worked there. A young Shinsuke Nakamura worked there. And uh, apparently they had a local TV show, and I- I've seen other mentions of this. These are two where Dave said, like, the announcers just talked about Ring of Honor the whole time to the point where you're wondering if this was an infomercial for Ring of Honor. It almost makes me curious, Matt, to see if I could find old video of this and see what he's talking about. If anyone can find it, it is you. Yeah, I'm sure if I really dug, I could find there's probably a, there's got to be a tape out there somewhere. But it- it's just funny to think that like. All these years later, where the relationship between Ring of Honor and New Japan is gone, like the idea that at this point it was like a weird little thing where a New Japan USA show was talking at Ring of Honor. And it, it went off the air, Matt, because it accomplished its mission. It, it let people know it existed. But um, that brings us to today's show. Glory by Honor 3 took place September 11th, never forget, 2004, at the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of 950 people. There is a lot of news about the nature of the show, so I just got a grab bag of stuff here. Uh, First, the Observer said before the show happened that Ring of Honor expected more than 1,000 people for the show in Elizabeth due to the appearance of Mick Foley, so obviously they came a little short of that. Um... PW Inside wrote, from when Mick Foley was announced to be doing this show, which happened in the intermission at Reborn Completion, uh, Mike Johnson wrote, Ring of Honor did the best advanced ticket sales in the history of the promotion after announcing Mick Foley would be appearing for the company on September 11th at the same venue. The promotion completely sold out of choice ringside seats by the end of intermission. The sales were said to be triple the previous record. So even though Foley didn't quite get Matt to what they wanted... Um, and it wasn't as high as they drew at the Rexplex for Jeff Hardy. They still, he clearly was a draw for them. Yeah, it's it's hard for me to, you know, even put myself back in the headspace of, like, Mick Foley appearing at a show like this. And Mick Foley's one of my all-time favorites, but the idea of him appearing at a show making such a big difference. And you, and then, you know, you got to remember, okay, well, in 2004, Mick Foley spent the first few months of the year involved in one of the hottest angles in WWE had a major match at WrestleMania and then had one of the great matches of the decade in that company with Randy Orton at Backlash of that year. So he was a very, very relevant figure at the time. Um, you know, I don't know how many wrestlers around now could make that sort of difference in ticket sales for an indie company. Um, you know, you figure like, 
I don't know. Who could? <laughs> do you think all the big stars in WWE could, or do you think it's a different era where that doesn't really happen anymore? I I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, I know they say uh, like for example, when Evolve started using WWE guys like NXT guys regularly, even if they were old like guys that had been involved the year before and then had gone up to NXT, that it made a noticeable difference. Even though the buzz online became less but yet the ticket sales live went up so maybe there's just a group of people that maybe we're not in touch with where that still matters in a big way yeah i'm not i'm not sure but we can all get why mick foley was a big deal in 2004 remembering the context yeah i mean not only like you said where he was at his career wise but i i think it can't be overstated that it was really important at this time to have people, respected people in the industry, and Mick Foley certainly one of the most respected, had one of the better images at this time, like, to kind of endorse the company in a way, letting fans know that, like, I'm putting kind of my trust in them, so maybe you can come back, too, if you're kind of a fan that was wary because of all the Feinstein scandals. Like, And we're getting a parade of people starting around now where we're getting Foley. Obviously, Steamboat was there the whole time. And then we're getting people that had withdrawn bookings coming in the next few months like Bobby Heenan Jim Cornette we see a promo for him on the show where he had pulled out now he's coming back so really you know Ring of Honor probably booking these guys mostly just to try and draw attention and fans but also there's probably a little bit of the idea of and of course Liger coming in too like look these people say it's okay to come back so you know if you were put off by what had happened like it's safe now it's a good point yeah, yeah, and this this is as far as the main as far as the people they brought in, you know, Ricky Steamboat's a big star, you know, Bobby Heenan's a big deal, but you know, none of them were as big stars in two thousand four as Mick Foley was. Exactly. Yeah. And especially again, Mick Foley, you know, there's people are gonna say bad things about everybody, but Mick Foley has kind of a pretty positive image. It's not like some wrestlers people might cynically go, Okay, he's working wearing of honor, someone will do anything for money. Like people I, I, people like to believe that social Mick Foley is generally a little more socially conscious than some people. So he's leading, he's lending that credence to do it. Um, the observer also noted that this show with its 950 fans drew about 250 more people than they drew on the previous show. So if you're trying to quantify exactly how much Mick Foley meant, I mean, it's, it, there's always other factors, but 250 fans maybe went to a show that maybe wouldn't have otherwise, uh, Ring of Honor, according to the Pro Wrestling Torch, also said it did record merchandise business on that sh- on this Mick Foley show, Glory by Honor 3. But part of that may have been also due to the fact that they said this was the first show where Ring of Honor was able to process credit card orders live at the show. So they were saying maybe that has something to do with it too. So, yeah. Wow. It took them, took them two and a half years <laughs> to get a credit card machine at yeah, their shows. So- yeah, they had to get rid of Rob Feinstein to get a credit card machine. Okay. Finally, <laughs> it's pretty crazy. You think again that Rob ran a videotape. I mean, but I mean, I have no idea the logistics, how much it costs. But it feels like you take for granted now that like every like every pizza guy now has like a portable credit card reader. But I think that's in Canada. Do <laughs> we got that here in the U.S. I remember. Oh. I remember. I went out to dinner. Um, in Montreal for a friend's bachelor party about three years ago, four years ago now almost, and um, and I we remember we were all very impressed by the fact that the guy who the waiter was 
walking around the table and taking everybody's credit cards and had like a portable credit card machine that he was doing it with one person at a time. And we were like, man, why don't they have this in America? Because they don't. Like, isn't that weird? Yeah, they don't. (laughs) Yeah, I don't – I can't speak to all of Canada, but I know in my experience, like I just take for granted that like in the last five or more years, it's like – I almost never, when I go out to eat, have to go up to like the cash register till they just bring you a portable credit card machine and be like, some mod times now they're not even, they don't even do it for you. They're just like, I punched in the numbers, you like swipe the card yourself and just take for granted that you're not going to like do something crazy. Yeah, no, here you give the, the person your credit card, they go back to wherever they, their station and they do it for you. And if you have like multiple credit cards, you're like, can you split it this way and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's how they do it. And they definitely do not have delivery people bring a portable credit card machine. You, if you, if you're going to pay with a credit card, you got to give them the credit card number online or over the phone or you're paying in cash. (laughs) That's how you do it. Yeah. God. uh, I know America, we're behind the times. (laughs) Truly. This is the worst thing that's happening lately. The worst thing we've talked about this episode um, we're behind the times both on racism and on paying for takeout. You'll get there on one of those things, Matt. At least one of them. Uh-huh. But uh, another note from this show, The Observer wrote, due to a curfew because the building had a midnight event, they had to get out at 10.45 p.m. So they only, and Dave writes only in quotation marks, had a three-hour and 45-minute window with five matches going on going in the 15 to 20-minute range. So that's another funny – the Rexplex, and I guess we'll talk about it later. Rexplex was a, was a building where things happened – a lot of different things were booked, including maybe some things that happened in the same building during the wrestling show that maybe you could hear going on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and get, and so, Gage's reaction to those things. Yeah. So it's pretty funny to think how much was popping because just to spoil, there, there's a concert going on and a wrestling show and apparently the Rexplex has something booked for that area like at midnight. So Rexplex in 2004, the place where everything has happened. And apparently, but it was closed within like six months. So what, (laughs) you know, clearly they are, they were intentionally overbooking the place because they needed to, I guess. (laughs) It's That's crazy. I I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, from the, and also I guess the next thing we need to talk about is there was a, some booking changes. seems like every ring of honor show we've been talking about lately has had big booking changes. This one I'll read from the Ring of Honor's Newswire for August 18th. Homicide versus Mark Briscoe has been signed for Glory by Honor 3 at, on 9-11 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, so that had to be changed because for injuries to people on both sides. We'll go to the Pro Wrestling Torch. Homicide was in a car accident and will miss this Saturday show. Oh, that's the 9-11 show. As a result, he is scheduled to return to action on October 2nd in Philadelphia. He will be at the Rexplex on Saturday in a non-wrestling capacity. Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky reported at Ring of Honor's website, quote, just wanted to give a heads up that Homicide is out for 9-11 due to his back being sore from the car accident. He was waiting till the end of the weekend to see if it got better, and it didn't. He expects to be out a couple of weeks. We will announce Walter's new opponent in the Newswire tomorrow. Before any speculation begins, it will not be Brian Danielson or Alex Shelley, as we are keeping that match intact and leaving the focus on it. On the world title, Captain Ali written sentence. But anyway, Danielson is basically defending his future world title shot versus Shelley in that match. So, 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 so they changed the homicide match to a match against John Walters and then got rid of that completely. Yeah. So 
just to be clear, yeah, um, Homicide was going to wrestle Mark Briscoe. Then when Mark Briscoe got hurt in a motorcycle accident, which we'll talk to about in just a second, they changed it to Homicide being John Walter's mystery of a or I guess announced opponent. Then Homicide gets hurt in a car accident. So then Nigel McGuinness has to be John Walter's opponent. And yeah, so we're getting changes on top of changes. That That's the kind of luck streak Ring of Honor was on at this point. And speaking of it, I don't know if we've, ta- we've, I think we've mentioned the motorcycle accident before, but this goes into more detail. Dave Meltzer writes, Mark Briscoe's accident last week came when he was r- riding a wheelie going 55 to 60 miles per hour on his motorcycle and it flipped over and he was banged up pretty bad. He won't be on the 9-11 show in Elizabeth and probably won't be back for several more weeks. Jay Briscoe, who is tending to Mark, has also canceled his 9-11 booking. Homicide was in an auto accident on September 3rd and suffered an injured back. He's also off 9-11. And so, yeah, Dave writes, the original match was going to be John Walters versus Jay Briscoe. And then it was switched to Homicide. So now it's going to be Nigel McGuinness, who hopefully won't have the same bad luck this week. So it was rich. This is um John Walters' third opponent for Glory by Honor 3, which is, of course, why that's why we call it Glory by Honor 3. Um, finally, PW Insider wrote, there were some issues with some of the ringside seats being double sold for Glory by Honor 3 last night. The promotion tried to make good by offering refunds and comps for bleacher seats, free DVDs, and also putting some fans upstairs in the balcony section where the hard camera is located. It was human error that caused the mistake, and the company tried to make good to the best of their ability. The promotion had stronger-than-usual security to prevent those outside the inner circle from entering the locker room, particularly because Mick Foley was debuting and partially to prevent word on Steve Carino's debut from leaking out. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I was really hoping that they would have just had the people sit on each other's laps. Um, (laughs) It would have just been a fun way to watch a wrestling show. They could trade, you know, one could be on top, one could be on the bottom, they could switch. You know, I don't know. And the last thing before we get to the show proper, PW Insider in their live report, Mike Johnson wrote what happened. This did not make the DVD. Before the show opened, the entire roster came to the ring and held a moment of silence for the victims of 9-11. Dan Moff took the mic and reminded everyone of what families had lost that night, that many of the wrestlers working the show were from the New York City area, and said if the United States can make it through 9-11, they can make it through anything. It was a nice clap. (laughs) (laughs) Just interesting to hear that statement right now. (laughs) I was going to say, I hope Matt, I hope Dan Moff is right. Um, It was a nice classy moment, although a comment later in the night would blemish it and we will get to that when it happens folks so yeah so keep in mind this was three years after 9-11 and for you youngsters out there 9-11 was like the overwhelming thing in everyone's mind in america for many years after and certainly within three years it just kind of hovered over everything it changed policy it changed lives certainly as a new yorker it changed the tone in that city um and I, we're still feeling the repercussions of it all, you know, 19 years later. But three years later, the wound was still very raw. The reactions were still very intense. So, you know, it, they had no choice but to have something like that. And what we see in um, – what we see coming up uh, from uh, somebody in a few – in a little while – kind of helps you understand why the reaction was what it was. But we'll get to that when it happens. Yeah, to, to younger uh, listeners, if there are such things, uh, first, hi, let us know. But also, yeah, if you're wondering what 9-11 was like, basically, I would describe it as like 
it's the, the, the last time the world felt this screwed up. So what you're feeling right now, that's like the idea that you're just kind of constantly in a state of stress and panic and seeing anger and hatred and division. Like not that that hasn't existed between those two years, but what we're getting now is kind of what we felt then. So in a, in a different flavor of it, maybe, but, uh, yeah, it's something that had to be acknowledged even then three years later. Um, we open backstage for the show proper on the DVD where Sugar Sean Price welcomes us to what he calls the biggest show in Ring of Honor history. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, do you think so? And I'm glad you just cut straight to the chase there. Um, he's joined by Dunn and Marcos. Uh, Marcos hurt his back at Scramble Cage Melee, so he can't compete tonight. Lacey walks in with her special K friends. Uh, she taunts Marcos. She asks him if he'd like a back rub before she just starts to taunt him and laughs at him. Uh, Marcos calls her a filthy hoe. And then the half of Special K that really hates uh, Lacey, which is led by Becky Bayless, really likes that hoe comment and they laugh. And she uh, says, you know, Dunn, you're cool. Or Marcos, you're cool. Um, Dixie, who is pissed off and he's dressed in a dress shirt, which I guess is the sign that he, the, the, the costume sign that he's now taking wrestling seriously. He tells everyone to shut up. He's tired of special K losing. And he says the losing streak ends tonight. So yeah. So in order to initiate Marcos into being even a bigger star in ROH, they have to get him over the misogyny hurdle. You know, and the misogyny hurdle, it's the classic ROH move where if you're not on camera being misogynistic, you are not a true star in Ring of Honor. So Marcos has finally passed this uh, this hurdle where he gets to be a misogynist on TV. Will Dunn get there? Because that tag team cannot achieve the, the level of success in ROH that they need without both saying something misogynistic. That's what held Dunn back. He just yeah. wouldn't cross the line. Um, no. And then we get to the opening match, which is Jimmy Rave, escorted to the ring by the embassy of Diablo Santiago, Oman Tortuga, and Prince Nana. And he defeated Dixie, who was escorted to the ring by Becky Bayless and Deranged. And he wins by pinfall in 5 minutes, 39 seconds, after he hits the Rave Clash. Matt, pretty short match. It's just another part of this, the start of the of the push of the kind of relaunched, newly heel Jimmy Rave. Uh, how, much do, how many thoughts do you have on a 5-minute match? Yeah, it was very short. I feel like it got over what it needed to get over. You know what I mean? Like it was – first of all, it was nice to have Punk back on commentary. No Mark Nolte because according to Punk, his uh, – Mark Nolte's grandma was involved in a horrible parasailing accident. And Punk, sa- <laughs> Punk said that he read – do you know where he said he read that? Where? On the Newswire. <laughs> um, <laughs> didn't have to use the Wayback Machine. He did. It was He said it. Um <laughs> He also good tonight. I'll say he was yeah, on this show. He was no, he was he was on. He also he called uh, Dixie the makeshift leader of this bunch of kids. Punk was twenty five for the record, um, but um, not like the grown man Punk who eloquently spoke on um, race and racism on WWE backstage. Um, and we'll soon speak on uh, his uh, having Rob Feinstein be his manager on WWE backstage. That's a scoop for all of you right there. Um, so gonna, give us credit. It's gonna happen. Um, but, you know, like Rave, um, you know, it was just basically to get over two things. Rave is cocky and he needs Nana to help him. And um, and uh, Special K, Dixie in particular, is serious. Right? Those are the two things, right? Yeah. So, like, Rave does a bunch of eye pokes because, as we know, 
eye pokes are what gets makes you a heel in Ring of Honor. We have established that over the last few shows. We're going to see more eye pokes on this show. Um, it's actually kind of like uh, the one of the more surprising things about the past few months of ROH is how many eye pokes there are and how like in, how like important that is for guys trying to be heels. Like I guess I don't know. It's like it's. I guess it just seems so sniveling to do, and that's why it's just such an easy go-to. But I've never seen a company have more eye pokes on their shows. Um, but Rave does some of them. He's—I would say—he is showing charisma. Like you know, like one of Rave's one—you know—one of the attacks on Rave as a babyface was that he was not really Mister Personality, and he's still not good on promos. But he did show charisma in the ring. You know, he would celebrate after like a ba- uh, a baseball slide low blow on Dixie. Um, <laughs> Punk goes with all these people at ringside. It almost looks like a retarded boxing match. And Gabe <laughs> goes, Gabe goes. I don't think that's politically correct because, as we all know, in 2004 they were very concerned with being politically correct. Um, Man, but you're missing the best part. Did you um, did you notice that after he, Gabe says, "I don't think that's politically correct," he tries to transition away, and he says, "This is literally what he says." And neither was that Russian leg sweep. <laughs> He's saying the Russian sweep was was also not politically correct. I don't know why. Is well, you can't. It's 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 it's, bla- it's you know naming the leg sweep after a whole country. You can't you can't put a leg sweep on the back of an entire nation of people. You know. Uh, so- Sign my online petition to change the name of the Russian leg sweep. Uh. Um, but, you know, Ray pretty much dominates. He gets, you know, big suplexes, swinging DDT, gonorrhea. Um, Punk actually corrects Gabe when Gabe calls it a shining wizard. He says, it's just a running knee, Gabe. Uh, and this tells me nobody in all those months ever said to Gabe that that wasn't a shining wizard. That's, that's remarkable to me. Like... And it's a great example of Punk actually being one of the guys brave enough and, like, in the position where he can actually just kind of, like, openly t- be like, Gabe, you're doing it wrong. Like, I imagine a lower-level guy, if they knew that, like, that tells me that Jimmy Rave, either he didn't watch his, the DVDs of his matches or even he was like, um, I'm not going to tell Gabe that this isn't the Shining Wizard. Or he's like, look at the Shining Wizard I can do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean you have to step off the knee? Um, but... Rave wins with the Rave Clash. Um, I thought this match was um, was what it needed to be. You know, wasn't anything wasn't anything great. Wasn't anything you need to watch. Um, but thumbs up. It was a light opener. Rave was cocky. He was a heel. Uh, the moves were okay. Dixie was taking things more seriously. It's a perfectly fine opener. You might even say it was there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have much more to add to what you said. Uh, yeah, this was mostly a showcase kind of squash, although Dixie did get a little bit of offense, but this was mostly just about, again, continuing to introduce, reintroduce Jimmy Rave as the heel. And yeah, he definitely, I, I think Mike Johnson, who was there live, wrote something like, I don't like, I don't know why, but like a robe or, or whatever. He said something like, you know, being part of the embassy has somehow managed to inject a little charisma into Jimmy Rave. And it really is true. Like, he is more charismatic and more – it's not – he's still not overflowing with charisma at this point in his career, but like it's a noticeable difference as a heel than a face. There, there is something to his character now instead of nothing in terms of how he works the crowd and, and things like that. And uh, another little punk commentary note he calls uh, – when uh, Dixie takes a, a drop kick to the groin, punk says that Dixie took it to the lower nutsack region. Which I thought was just another classic little punkism. 
And this was another match that uh, this this match got shuffled around too because this was supposed to happen on the last show actually this exact match Jimmy Ray versus Dixie, but it got changed because of the injury to Mark Briscoe. So they shuffled around the card, and uh, so Gabe made sure we were not deprived of this five minute Dixie Jimmy Ray match. He delivered on his promise. Uh, show later, so good on him. Um, yeah, and after the match, Prince Nana and the Outcast Killers join Rave in the ring. Someone in the crowd is jawing with Rave. We can't make out what they say. Uh, Rave holds the ropes open and tells him to get in the ring. Nana's on the mic, and he then calls his fan a fat girl and says, how dare she show up looking like an animal? Uh, Nana says the embassy's on a roll, and the paperwork has been signed. He's introducing the newest member of the embassy right now, Mick Foley. Uh, music plays, but Foley doesn't come out. You left Nana. out one. You left out one very interesting sentence by Prince Nana. He says, "We are winning the takeover of Ring of Honor," which I don't know what that means, but it's an interesting sentence. <laughs> Um, Nana tells the music guy to do it one more time and Nana reintroduces Foley. Foley still doesn't come out. Nana then says that maybe Mick has some butterflies and Nana's going to go straighten it all out. So Mick will come out later. So this is a little storyline that will keep playing out over the whole first half of the show. A cute little classic wrestling tease. Yeah. Uh, we cut to a, a pro wrestling tease. <laughs> ProWrestlingTees.com. A a less objectionable pro wrestling tease. Um, Don't know if you know that story, but I do know. I do know that story. We're being topical today. (laughs) Uh, Cut to backstage where Gary Michael Capetta is with Samoa Joe in a promo that an on-screen graphic tells us was taped earlier tonight. I don't know why this was the one promo that got that. (laughs) (laughs) So random. Yeah, uh, Joe's wearing a Japanese Steve Carino Ichiban t-shirt from Zero One, which I don't know if it's just a coincidence or is a little bit of a a, a wink to let us know, hey, Carino's here. But uh, Gary says Joe has always owned this event, Glory by Honor, and Joe kind of recaps his history with it. He says uh, in Glory by Honor 1, he debuted and he left a mark in one of the most brutal matches in the history of the sport. At Glory by Honor 2, he successfully defended the Ring of Honor world title against Christopher Daniels. And tonight, at Glory by Honor 3, he faces Doug Williams. Uh, Joe says his goal is to solidify himself as the most dominant champion in wrestling today. Uh, At this point, Gary reminds Joe that Doug Williams was chosen to be his opponent tonight by the pure champion John Walters. So, for those who don't know, kind of the conceit for the show was Glory by Honor 2 had that thing where Punk and uh, Raven, who were feuding at that time, got to choose each other's opponents. And so the idea by Rick Glory by Honor 3 was it was going to be uh, the pure and the world champion were going to get to do the same for this show. And Joe decided he wasn't going to uh, pick uh, John Walter's opponent. Uh, Gary asked Joe who he selects to face Walters tonight. Joe says he didn't choose an opponent for Walters tonight for one reason. Going on to say that the pure title, which it, with its, quote, kitschy set of rules, unquote, was only created to placate the boys who can't beat Joe for the world title. Uh, Joe says he didn't pick an opponent for Walters because he doesn't care about the silly pure belt. Uh, Gary asks Joe, how does it feel that he has a loss to homicide on the last show? Joe gets intense. He says, they're not here to talk about homicide. Joe says the homicide chapter has long since closed and tonight's about Doug Williams. Joe finishes up by saying he'll worry about homicide when he gets his shot at the title. So, um, so Joe left out that he lost at that first glory by honor, by the way, he was yeah. like, I made my mark, but never mentions that he lost. Yeah. 
So a lot going on here. And the promo, in a sense, continues on because even though Gay from behind the camera says cut, we get a classic Ring of Honor trope of the camera actually staying on. And we pan over just a couple feet to see that Jay Lethal was leaning against what looks like a kitchen area just a couple feet away during the entire promo. Uh, Jay asks Jay, Joe asks Jay if he's ready for tonight. Jay sheepishly says, yeah. And Joe asks if yeah is all he's got. Uh, Joe says, Jay's not ready and asks Jay if he thinks that this is all a game. Joe then slaps Jay really hard in the chest. And he says to get ready because if he doesn't win tonight, he's out of ring of honor. He's done. Joe says, uh, he tells Jay that striker, Matt Stryker, his opponent for tonight, likes to use an ankle lock, and he's about to tell Jay how to beat Matt Stryker, and he hands him this piece of gear, I guess, to wear around his ankle. And he says, you'll need this. And then Joe ushers Joe, Jay away to tell him, I guess, how to beat Matt Stryker, which is funny because it's one of those things where it's like, the whole conceit of these little parts of these promos is supposed to be like, the wrestlers think the camera is off so they can really have a heart-to-heart. But even then, Joe, Joe's like, Let's walk away from this camera that we were just told is off so we can – I can tell you this in private even though technically this is supposed to be private now. He doesn't want the cameraman going to snitch to Stryker. Yeah. I mean I guess that's a good way to put it. But – so yeah, we're just <laughs> – Oh, I guess, I guess that's why they're like it was earlier tonight because then the next thing you see is lethal out in the ring. That yeah. seems unnecessary but okay. Yeah, so – and that brings us to the next match, which is a match with a double stipulation. Jay Lethal's Ring of Honor job and Matt Stryker's East Coast plane tickets are on the line in this match. Jay Lethal defeats Matt Stryker via pinfall in 4 minutes, 23 seconds, when he reversed a striker lock into a roll-up small package type thing for the win. So an even shorter match than the opener on the show – this was, I would describe as short and pretty slight as a match. There isn't a ton to it. Stryker did wrestle with a bit more intensity and a bit of a mean streak than he often does, which is, I always like this level of Matt Stryker better. Although there was also kind of a couple botches in a sh- match this short, like, well, at least w- one, where he does a super kick, but he hits it really, I think, lower than he intended. It only gets to, like, Jay Lethal's lower midsection. Now, he, uh, he does get it above his lower nutsack region, but still to the lower midsection. <laughs> and um, it's one of those things that's – it's another one of those matches, Matt, where even though I've not been Matt Stryker's biggest fan, I feel sad because this is kind of – in some ways, I find losing your East Coast plane tickets to be an even more emasculating step than just you lose and you're out of Ring of Honor. Like, we'll still book you, but just when you can drive here. Like, And we haven't seen that step since, I believe – late 2002 where Punk and Cabana wrestled in a match where it was kind of the opposite where it was the winner got plane tickets and the loser still had to drive. Yeah. We get the opposite here where the where um if you if striker loses he loses the plane tickets. Uh the crowd was even chanting na 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 hey 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 goodbye before the match even started to striker and I also liked how there's some moments where Gabe's commentary, it's like honest in an almost admirable way because it's almost undercutting the step, but it's just him being honest because Gabe could have said like, if Jay Lethal loses this match, you'll never see him in Ring of Honor again and then just renege on that later. But Gabe actually says, even though he knows Jay's going to win here, he says, if Jay loses tonight, he'll be dropped from the Ring of Honor roster until maybe spring of next year. So I love that like like Gabe, you know, he's being honest enough where he's like, look, if he loses, he's not going to be out of a job forever, just until we need another crop of guys. And uh, Gabe mentioned on commentary, it's all about the wins in Ring of Honor, so why this tip is happening is Jay's been imp- looking impressive lately, but he hasn't been winning, and also Stryker's been in a slump, so that's why we're kind of doing this 
step where we're punishing whoever loses. But Matt, again, I don't know how much you have to say about the body of work in a four minute something match, but I, am I wrong to feel kind of bad for Matt Stryker at this point? Well, so this is one of the things that I'm most critical of on the show. Um, the work itself was fine. I did not expect the match to be that short. Like it, it, it really knocked me for a loop when it was over. I was like, "Well, that's it." You know, I was very surprised. But here is what I didn't like about this. I don't feel like this was built up at all. Like I feel like the, I don't remember commentary talking that Jay Lethal or Matt Stryker's jobs were in jeopardy. Do you remember them anything talking about that? No, like they definitely both like yeah, St- Lethal was losing and Stryker was kind of in a slump, but they weren't the commentary yeah wasn't trying to sell over the last few shows this story maybe it was more in the newswires, but they were trying to they commentary certainly on these shows wasn't selling like they're in trouble, which is a storyline Ring of Honor would sell it for other wrestlers at other times, like the idea of Jimmy oh, Rave. Yeah, needs to win soon. Yeah, it's 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 just yeah, and like yes, I've talked about this before that there's like multiple continuities. There's the newswire continuity, and there's the DVD continuity, and sometimes they forget to put the storylines they're pushing in the newswire onto the actual shows. And there are people that don't watch the newswires, like you know, people reviewing the shows uh, twenty. 15 years later, 16 years later. But who um, maybe spent 45 minutes yesterday trying to find ar- get archive.com to uh, load up the newswires for this month and couldn't do it. Didn't uh, you think of that, Gabe? Um, but <laughs> <laughs> people in quarantine, right? As there are riots going on outside trying to find out information about Matt Stryker from 16 years ago. Didn't you think of that? A um, very normal problem so many fans are having today. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, but they, they, like, it just, all of a sudden, they're like, okay, Matt Stryker, not only is his job in jeopardy, but, like, all the fans hate him. They never really mention that. Like, we, I remember he got booed pretty badly at the last Jersey show. But they didn't really make a point of it, did they? Like, did they really talk much about that? Uh, I don't think that really that much. And, you know, again, I don't think Matt, especially when he was paired up with other faces huh. against Generation Next at some of these shows, like, he wasn't <laughs> positioned as a heel. He's no. just a guy that the crowd happened to like really getting on his ass. And the funny thing is, um, maybe it's not funny to him, but like I felt like Matt Stryker was sort of doing a little better once the Generation Next stuff started. Like I thought he was in a slump for most of 2004, but I thought he had good matches with Generation Next. I thought the crowd was on his side in the Midwest, and he even mentions that. Oh, we'll get to the promo where he says, like, you know, they appreciate good wrestling in the Midwest. But I don't know. It just – like this stuff just felt too out of the blue for me. The match itself was fine, um, completely forgettable. Um, I liked a couple of the moves. I uh, like Lethal. He did like a, um, I don't know how to describe it, like a running flip drop kick in the corner, which you don't really see him do that much of in ROH. You know, they they did a chop battle, which you would not expect from these two. And do you know how Matt Stryker cuts off that chop battle? I, I forget. Tell, tell me, Matt. Tell us all. A poke to the eyes. And, <laughs> because, you know, Matt Stryker's a heel in this match. And, um, you know, then then you just get the quickly into the cradle. So I guess Joe's secret was cradle him up when he puts on the ankle lock. That was the, that probably wasn't a very long meeting. But um, I wonder how Joe knows that because I don't remember Joe doing that to Matt Stryker. But maybe he did and I just forgot. I don't know. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that match. <laughs> going, going to the point you made on the first couple of matches about so many eye pokes and stuff, do you think it's just a sign of the times that so many of these indie wrestlers in, like, 2004 grew up probably on, like, mid-'80s WWF? So, like, to them, when they're 
some of these guys probably having to be a heel for one of the first times or an early time. So like to them, like, Oh shit, how do I be a heel? Uh, whatever I saw on superstars in 87, you know, like, like kind of, you're just going to the most simple kind of the things you grew up on. Yes. I think that's part of it. I also think, you know, if you're a good enough wrestler, ROH fans are going to cheer you. And nobody's going to be like, yeah, that eye poke was awesome. So it's like (laughs) – it's guaranteed to get booze also. Um, So I think there's that. Yeah. I was just going to say it's like when Mick Foley wrote in his first book about how like, you know, his ECW era where to be a heel, he realized he had to be a heel by doing stuff like headlocks because otherwise if he just did some cool move or bump, people still weren't going to boo him. You had to basically do a move that was so kind of boilerplate and boring that people wouldn't get behind it. Yep. And they and, did it. <laughs> and um, I was going to say something else, but I forgot. But it's okay because it's just Jay Lethal versus Matt Stryker in a four-something minute match. Oh, I was going to say also, Matt, we saw in the last little promo that just before this match, Joe giving Jay Lethal a uh, piece of gear and saying, like, I'm going to show you how to beat Matt Stryker. Did that piece of gear really come into play? Because after the match, like, the announcers don't talk about They don't reference the promo, even though conceivably they would have watched it while this was recording, maybe. Or I, I don't know. I forgot about um, that gear. But, you know, that was just like a, like a, an ankle brace thing. Yeah. So I yeah. guess it maybe the idea was it prevented Stryker from getting enough twist on that ankle and allowed Lethal to do the reversal. That's the only thing I can think of. But you are right that they did not explain that in any way. Because Lethal's still selling his ankle pretty hard after the match keeps grabbing it and limping and stuff, but yet, like, there's no, there's no, like, uh, um, Greg the Hammer Valentine, like, Ron Garvin moment where, like, the brace neutralizes Matt Stryker and, like, Jay Lethal's like, aha, like, it doesn't hurt at all. Like, there's nothing like that in this match. He just rolls up Matt Stryker for the win. I feel like that would underline, undermine any ankle locks any wrestler ever did if that device existed. <laughs> um, so after the match, the crowd continues to chant, na 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 na, hey hey, goodbye at Matt Stryker. Uh, Jay keeps selling his ankle. The two eventually shake hands, which is interesting. They're not going with a full blown Matt Stryker heel turn, even in the face of all of this, even with what's about to come. Uh, Lethal limps to the back. Stryker grabs the mic and he says, everyone is real happy that he just lost his plane ticket to the East Coast. He says he blames he blames each and every one of the fans for this, saying that while he goes out there and gives 110% every night, they sit behind their desks and their keyboards like cowards. And they say, oh, Matt Stryker's boring. Uh, Stryker says that's fine because he's going to go back to the Midwest, except... Matt doesn't initially say Midwest. He botches it and accidentally says, I'm going back to the East. He catches himself, but it's too late. The crowd notices notices this. They start laughing at him, booing even more. The crowd chants, you fucked up, Adam. One of the rare times you'll hear a Ring of Honor crowd actually chant, you fucked up. Uh, Stryker tells them to, quote, eat shit, unquote. Uh, I wonder how much of that at that point is legit anger. Um, Stryker says he's going back to the Midwest, where they respect him and treat him like what he is, a wrestling god. He tells the East Coast to kiss his ass, and then Stryker goes to the back, jawing with some fans along the way. Not a bad promo from Stryker, except, of course... He made a mistake at the worst possible time. And Matt, going to what you were saying earlier, I do feel like what you said is true, where there's a little bit of like an late Ring of Honor career Xavier thing here, where Matt Stryker actually was kind of ticking back up again in terms of his performances, but but at a time where the crowd or the booking had kind of already given up on him. And yeah, I mean, that mistake that he made was, you know, opportune, I, I would say, considering he was trying to be a heel. But... 
Um, my favorite part of the promo was on the way back, after all this anger from the crowd, a guy yells, and you could hear it very clearly, See you at dinner, Matt! <laughs> <laughs> like he was going to just be hanging out with all of them at dinner. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I would love if there was a family member that was like legit, like, don't forget the dinner reservation. Like, I'll be outside the Rexplex later. Like, just Olive Garden, Matt, and it, just something like that. But, uh, it's, that Jer- it's Jersey, so they probably did go to the Olive Garden. No, just kidding. <laughs> no offense to my Jersey people. Don't <laughs> kill me. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> um, so it's, it's funny because Matt Stryker, he had enough charisma. I love, I love Bruce Springsteen. He's literally my favorite. <laughs> Don't kill me. I swear he is. <laughs> Look on my Twitter. You'll see. I would love if all the things that like gets us hate or anger or like threats after this tonight's episode, it would be New Jersey Olive Garden comment. That that would be just that would be fitting for some reason. But you're right. It, it's funny that Matt Stryker, like, I actually feel he does wrestle for, at least for one or two more shows. I think in Ring of Honor, but it, like when it, he does legit lose his East Coast plane ticket, he only does it for like local Dayton shows and stuff like that, Midwest shows. But it's a. Uh, I do think there is an alternate world where Matt Stryker could have harnessed this legit hate and kind of had a Jimmy Rave-esque career resurgence as a mid-card heel for Ring of Honor, but it just doesn't happen for him. It's it's actually sad. Like within a year, he will be almost forgotten in the sense of like there's another Matt Stryker that will be in the news and he will get hired by WWE and people will make jokes like oh yeah you know there's a, there was another guy named Matt Striker with a y and like like almost like he was like like just forgotten about in this uh, in this scene and that is unfair because this Matt Striker was better than that one <laughs> yeah like whatever complaints i have with Matt Striker he probably deserves to have a bit more of a legacy than one he had a unibrow and two he's he's literally the guy where you go yeah he's that Matt Striker no not that Matt Striker like his, his legacy is basically the guy with the Y, which is, he, he deserves a little more than that. He I had agree. Some legit, really good matches in 2003. I definitely agree. And uh, going on to the six man mayhem Trent Acid defeated Ace Steel, Angel Dust, Fast Eddie, Izzy, and Cahegas, debuting in Ring of Honor. Don't get too attached to him in seven minutes, 52 seconds when Trent pins Angel Dust after he hits his inverted brain buster. So Trent Acid continuing his little gimmick of King of the Multi-Man matches. His reign as King of that will end soon. But Matt, a classic six-man, multi-man, scramblish type match. What do you think? How did it stand up in the canon of the millions of these we have seen at this point? Um, well, first of all, I feel bad for Hegis because – he didn't do anything wrong in this match, but he I I don't know if I've seen too many matches where a guy debuts in like a match, like a big spot fest match and stands out less than Hagus did. Like yeah. he just like he like you just totally forgot about him. Like I'm trying to even think about what he did. Like he did a few neckbreaker moves to acid. He did like a stunner type of thing. Um you know, like he does very very little. Uh, he doesn't really stand out at all. So you know, missed opportunity for him, I guess. Um, didn't make the most of it. Was he ever back on an ROH main show again? Uh, I'm not even sure, but that should that should tell you something. That even if he was, he wasn't around enough to even make an impression where I know the answer to that. Yeah, he does some knee strikes. I don't know. Um, I would say it wasn't a match fitting for him, probably. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't the right match for him. Like I said, did not 
did not look bad. He just didn't look like any like he just like he just forgettable. Um, but I thought the match was hot and cold. Like there was some real sloppiness in a couple of moves, like this crazy weird like reverse Rana thing that Acid did. I thought was actually cool. Like so, basically, what happened was um, Fast Eddie was going up for his like fallaway slam off the top on Angel Dust, like almost like a moonsault slam. Um, so Acid climbed up and hit a reversed Rana on Eddie, who was still holding Angel Dust. So he does his flip slam while being Ronaed, and I thought it it worked. Like I was sure that would be a clusterfuck, especially considering like you know Acid has been known to have a few of those, and mm. I thought that move worked. I thought it was cool. Like I thought that was probably the highlight of the match. Um, I, um, but. You know, as far as other stuff, I'm trying to even think about like what some of the highlights were. Um, like, like at one point, Angel Dust tries to do a running knee, knocking uh, Fast Eddie over the top, but they get like tangled up in the ropes. Like, like that's like that's pretty sl- sloppy. Um, at one point, Izzy stands on Acid's back and he does a moonsault drop kick to Angel Dust, who's on the top rope. However, he he can't get all the way over on the moonsault, so he just like slams down senton style on a- on Acid's back. And that did not seem like it was fun for Acid. Um, but um, at one point, Gabe was like, Special K is fighting each other. And I was like, they're, they're opponents. <laughs> they are, you know, literally wrestling against each other. So I don't know. Um, but they do, you know, their pile is he hits a springboard, do- uh, cork- excuse me, corkscrew dive. Acid hit an acai moonsault. Um, Eddie does a twisting dive. Um then, um, you know, you get Hey Hagus, his neck breakers. Um, Steel hits an implant DDT but on Hagus, but Eddie breaks up the pin. Then you have that reverse Rana that I talked about. Then Eddie hits, I mean, then Izzy hits a reverse Rana of his own on Acid for two. Steel breaks that up. Ace hits the spinal shock on top of Izzy. And then um, everyone is hitting each other with kicks and knocks them out. And then Acid grabs Angel Dust with a reverse brain buster and gets the win. Um, definitely not the best of these uh, six-man mayhem matches, um, but there are a couple of spots that I thought were very, very good. And you know, sometimes you take what you can get from matches like this. I actually like this match uh, more than you. I thought this was more, like a pretty good one of these kinds of matches. I thought it, you know, wasn't very long, didn't overstay its welcome, which is always a plus to be more concise. And um, this is one of those matches where. We've talked about it before, but just it really shows the difference in indie wrestling or wrestling in general where the high flyers of the old days were all about just can I do something cool, whether I can nail it perfectly or it looks fluid and clean or if I can even hit it with a higher than like 70% success rate. Like it's just – but yet – I, I, sometimes I I miss that like there is a charm in the old uh, in some of these wrestlers who even like the spots you described which are highlight spots like that Trent Acid one like they don't look super clean and polished like they always look like a wrestler's on the verge of a, of, of of like even when they hit it it's like they just barely pulled that off like they're <laughs> yeah lucky definitely they, they did that and sometimes in a way it's really great that we have wrestling now where everything is so where the average wrestler is so much more especially like a flyer, these kinds of wrestlers are more polished and their mechanics are so much smoother and more sound. But then there is something exciting sometimes when I'm in the right mood for it of just these skinny guys 
that can barely pull things off where you feel like they're just walking a tightrope and they barely know how to walk a tightrope. They know just enough to make it to the other side. And it, it depends what mood it in. It depends what you like. And I, I guess it kind of, uh, this was a night that I watched this match where that charmed me maybe more than it charmed you and maybe would more than it would charm me on a different night. And I do think that the Izzy Angel does stuff, Gabe was trying to sell that like, he was trying to further the dissension between the two sides of Special K and where he was like, you know, there's no hesitation where I, I guess, you know, yeah, it is tough because I get what you're saying, which is they're in a match where it's everyone for themselves. They should be hitting each other and stuff. But I felt like Gabe was trying to almost cover for that where he's like the fact that they never once had like the standard kind of hesitation spot or, or even work together where it was always they, they just very quickly wrestled each other. It didn't come off like they hate each other, but Gabe was kind of trying to sell it like this is dissension because, you know, they're having no problem, you know, wrestling each other. And I thought the sequence they had was one of the highlights of the match, just very fast and fun. And I thought Izzy stood out in this match. He's a guy that has been standing out in a lot of these matches where it's fine. I just talked about how I like this match because it's kind of crazy and sloppy. But I thought Izzy stood out because he was probably the least sloppy and most polished guy in this match. And it is, it's another weird point in Trent Asset's career where he's winning this match, but his push is really kind of over in Ring of Honor. If you look what happens to him in the next few shows and, and, um, he, this is another one of those matches where he felt so hot at a certain point in 2003, like the homicide feud. And we've been saying lately, like this is another one of these multi-man matches where he's came to the multi-man matches. And apart from that huge spot you talked about that he was in, he feels like the third or fourth most interesting guy in this match. I was, surpri- he, I was surprised he didn't win since they were still pushing that, that persona. He did win. Oh, you're right. Duh, duh. I, yes, yeah. duh, you're right. I, he, I, he loses one of these soon. Yes, it, it, this is this is like kind of the end of that run, I believe. But, yeah, I, I was looking at a note that I had that where I messed up, but I realized yes, you're right, he did win. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the only other th- note I have from this match is Gabe said at one point in commentary that the Rexplex has become the Madison Square Garden for Ring of Honor. Did you ever feel that way? Let alone right now. I mean, it was a place where they were trying to put on big shows, but I felt like they had a few cities at this point that were on like a similar point. You got Philly. You would have uh, Chicago was starting to um, would start to emerge. Boston still got some big shows, but like him saying, like the Rexplex is now MSG for Ring of Honor. I saw. I honestly sort of do see what he was going for there. It is where they would hold their like big epic shows uh, for a little while. Um, you know, they they had the um, you know the big WrestleMania weekend show. They had the big Reborn completion where all the big angles happen. The McFoley show. You know, obviously the first Death Before Dishonor might have been in some ways the biggest. Um, and then you know they have you know two big shows at the place the rest of this year. So I do sort of see it. You know, Philly. You know, they they were kind of had it for a while, but. Philly kind of got all screwed up because they had to have it outside in a tent at a small venue a couple times. They actually the next show is actually their first show back at their supposed new home, the you know the 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 armory the the mm. the the first show back since Final Battle two thousand three, which is so almost a year between shows there. So they've had small crowds in Philly um, over the previous year. So I can sort of see why he's saying that for the Rex Plus. Also. It is their de facto New York City location, even though it's in New Jersey. It's as close as they were getting to New York at the time. And I think there was sort of a, a thing like they wanted to say they were running New York and that was their big venue. So I get what he was going for, even though it didn't totally work out that way. Those are good points. I- I'm glad I asked you because, yeah, you made some good points. Also, like 
did the MSG ever have like the Grateful Dead playing during like WrestleMania 10 or something in the same building? Because then that would also, with what's coming up later, uh, <laughs> maybe help the MSG comparison. Like during WrestleMania one, was there like a jam band that you could hear playing during the Hogan and Mr. T tag match? Because uh, then yeah. maybe I could understand this also a little bit better. But. They couldn't. They couldn't because um, WrestleMania ten. I'm being like now super pedantic, but at WrestleMania ten they actually sold tickets to the theater, the, the forum at the Garden, for people could watch the show on big screen oh, at the same yeah. time. I remember like that on like the pregame show or something. They were like hyping that. I think. Or- also, cr- I think Crush and uh, and Macho Man fought in there in the uh, in their Falls Count Anywhere match too. Or or Macho Man went in there afterwards and was like celebrating with them. That was actually the same place that they had the, um, I believe, the first Lions Den match. That mm. was that was in that yeah. that was in that theater too. Um, in the old in the old days, actually at MSG, they would always sell that um, that place for the big shows. Um, so probably the first WrestleMania that was sold too. I'm guessing. Maybe tonight I'll just watch WrestleMania 10 again and pretend that the world doesn't exist. That sounds good, actually. Yeah, I got four donuts waiting for me. I can. Just eat way too much sugar. Uh, anyway, enough about my plans. Let's move on to CM Punk defeating Austin Aries via pinfall in 18 minutes, 57 seconds, with a schoolboy after Steve Carino returned and helped distract Austin Aries. Uh, before the match starts, Austin Aries got on the mic and he asked Vic Foley to bring what he called that sack of doorknobs he calls an ass to, to come down to the ring. <laughs> And face a real wrestler one on one. Again, doesn't show up. By the way, is this Aries's first ever solo mic time in ROH? It, it, it might be, and also like later, it, it, it must be because I was struck like there's a promo near the end of the night with Je- or right at the end of the night with Generation Next, and they let Aries speak a little bit, and I was just struck like whoa. For some reason, it caught me off guard, and I think it was probably partly that that we hadn't heard him talk much, if at all, in Ring of Honor yet, and also partly because. He clearly does not have the Austin Aries charisma he would get later in his career at this point. Yeah, his I say he grew more on the mic in some ways than Danielson did. Yeah. Um, anyway, this match was a disappointment. This this match felt strangely off. It, it's a. Uh, it's funny. Sometimes people say like, "Oh, those guys felt like they were wrestling two different matches." This literally to me felt Matt felt like they were wrestling two different matches. Like the first six minutes of this match is Punk um, just working, doing almost nothing but working over Aries' arm. And there's actually some fun parts of it. Like, I like some of Punk's arm work. He, uh, I, I like that he, like, did the Irish whip where he holds onto the arm, so the guy trying to, like, wrench the arm out of the guy's socket. I like there was a sequence where Aries keeps kipping up out of things, trying to get out of arm locks, and Punk keeps getting him back into it or putting him down. But yet... I have a little internal rule, I guess we could call it like Dame's Law, where, uh, or not even Dame's Law, more like Dame's Suggestion. I would never make it a law, but that the more a match, the more a match, more time a match spends on working over a body part, the more selling and more of a payoff it should have. If you just work over a body part for like 30 seconds and then forget about it, I'm not going to get mad. If you are like in this match where Punk spends like the first third of the match working over the arm and then keeps going back to it whenever he's on offense, I would like Aries to sell it better. Aries selling in this match felt like he remembered half the time to sell the arm and then half the time didn't and would just use it and, and not sell it. And likewise, it doesn't really pay off into a satisfying finish because the finish has nothing to do with the arm. It has to do with interference. And also, 
uh, Punk, you know, the only real big thing it comes into play, like in terms of anything substantial late in the match, is Punk goes for the Fujiwara armbar a couple times, which because it's a move he doesn't usually use and hasn't ended matches with, gets little doesn't get much of a reaction. But mostly, Matt, it just felt. Oh, sorry. I was just gonna say. By the way, if you're running the through the years wiki, make sure you add in a entry for Dame's suggestion. Dame's suggestion. I want that to catch on. Like I'm trying to get Joe Gagne's rule to um, catch on, which is the Joe Gagne suggested idea that when wrestling fans stop watching wrestling for a while, um, they might never come back as they realize that maybe life's okay without pro wrestling. So <laughs> I've been trying to credit that just to Joe, even though I've seen other people make that point. Wrestling that, that counts law. Wrestling counts on people for whom life is not okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, it just, this match felt like, it's weird. Like it didn't feel like these guys, like sometimes when people say a match has no chemistry, I think they feel like they're really saying a match has bad chemistry, like spots are off or, or they're not communicating. Well, this match didn't feel like they had bad chemistry. It felt like they had no chemistry. Like just like, like I said before, like they were wrestling two separate matches. Like punk was wrestling this very throwback kind of body part centric, kind of more stripped back, not so crazy and and match and aries whenever he got on offense was wrestling just a standard for this era austin aries fast-paced high impact offense not a lot of focus just aries match and they didn't seem it, it really did feel like two separate matches and then there were a couple spots that didn't look great um there was like a really ugly looking ddt by aries on punk there was a crazy dive by aries over the top rope where it looked like punk barely caught a piece of him i don't know who was at fault for that but you know this was one of those shows too where because it's the rexplex they're landing on like a hardwood basketball court floor with no covering so that probably had to suck and then you had the finish where Generation Next runs in and then eventually Carino runs in. We've been seeing more of these interference finishes and, and he fights them off and that distracts Ares and then Punk gets the win. And I don't necessarily mind the interference, but what I did mind was the camera actually missed the finish of this match, I think, Matt, if I remember correctly, to show us like the like Carino and stuff on the outside. Like we missed the roll-up, which I felt was another kind of and, and this match overall, I wouldn't say, I would say like it's average to maybe like two and three quarter stars, which would be like slightly above average because there is some action. And again, most of what they do mechanically is fine. It's just these two guys were very good wrestlers who both had been in some great matches in recent months. And the idea that they were given almost 19 minutes and the best they could do is like it was past, it was watchable. That that's one. This is honestly one of the more disappointing matches I've seen in Ring of Honor in a long time. At this point in its in its history, in my opinion, um, what what do you think? Like, do how much of that do you agree with? Um, I guess all of it. Um, pretty much. I, I um, you know, I wrote something similar at the end. I said, you know, this match was disappointing. It um, it wasn't a bad match, and I wrote it was much closer to being a good match than it was to being a bad match. I would say. Would you agree with that? Like it was closer to closer to good than bad. Um, I would say there were some ingredients in this match that could have been part of a really good match. Yeah, but it had a very restless crowd, and I think part of it was like what you were talking about the arm stuff early. You know, you know, I'd say if they had cut that, if they had cut that down dramatically. That would have been an okay segment, but it kept going and going and going. Um, 
And in fact, I think Gabe even realized this match was a big draw because he actually did his little, um, you know, we're time to pay the bills and he like plugging the website and all that and the upcoming shows. He actually did that during this match, which is very unusual for him to do it during a match in the first half of the show. So we knew this match in some ways was like a star power level main event. But, you know, the match itself, I think part of it is also there was a reputation that Punk had as sort of being treated like a heel in New Jersey even after he turned face. And obviously this is like the first match he had in New Jersey after he turned face. And you could tell there was the dueling chance. The crowd was not firmly on his side. They're not making a ton of noise. Um, and I thought maybe as I was watching this, oh, maybe this, this show just doesn't have a good crowd. But watching the rest of the show, I thought the crowd was pretty good. So this, it really was just the match, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, Aries at one point tries to do a hold with Punk in the ropes, and I was like, this ain't a pure title match, Aries. Can't do it. <laughs> it also, it was funny <laughs> that Aries came, like, at one point was doing a comeback. He was doing, like, his, like, spinning elbow thing, but he threw off his elbow pad like he was the rock. But then afterward, he took, he picked up the elbow pad and put it back on, which I, ne- <laughs> I have never – I don't think I've ever seen the rock do that one. Um, I, I love that the idea that, like – well, safety first. Like, you know, like this one move got to have the effectiveness of the bare elbow. But I'm not going to be an idiot. Like it, it's one of those strangely sensible things that seems weird in wrestling. Like shots fired at Mick Foley for you know doing something <laughs> allu- uh, you know alluding to his tag team partner. But um, um, yeah, as far like you know the match, I felt like in some ways it kept going. But I did think like the later part of the match was pretty good. Um, like there was like Aries went out for the 450, Punk cut him off, Punk went for the plunge, Aries fought him off, hit a sunset flip power bomb, but Punk rolled through and hit the power bomb to a series of boos. I thought the booers were kind of annoying, but whatever, let them have their fun. Um, Punk hit the welcome to Chicago, which now um, Gabe was correctly identifying. Um, went for the Fujiwara, Aries fought off, made the ropes. Like this whole segment I thought was pretty good, but the crowd was not really reacting that much you know and that's how you could tell they had sort of lost them you know especially guys of this caliber i mean that's Mm -hmm. when you know the generation next ran in actually when generation next first ran in after the ref bump i was sort of like what was the point of all this like because you know basically they just strong and evans run in and ace runs them off and i'm like what was the point but then shelly appeared with Carino, and I was like, oh, okay. I think that like that actually worked to set it up. I thought the Carino yeah. appearance was actually pretty cool. I popped for it because like I did not remember that at all, and it had been a long time for him to come, and you know, a surprise return is cool. And when it's a star, and it's uh, it actually is a surprise, which again, it was for me here. Did you remember that Carino returned on no, the show? It, it was a surprise watching. I forgot, and you know, I don't know about the newswires, but yeah, it was a great surprise in that they never telegraphed it in any way, which sometimes Ring of Honor at this point did. Like, they didn't do anything to hint that this was going to happen. Yeah. I thought, so. I thought it was actually a really cool moment. Um, the, the end, That part got over. You know, the match didn't really get over, but the ending got over. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was cool to see Carino back. Um, one other thing is, uh, uh, going to the notes, the Observer which often you have to remember got some of their live reports from fans, but also sometimes they got notes directly from uh, Ring of Honor officials. Uh, the, the Observer wrote that the only disappointing match on Glory by Honor 3 was said to be CM Punk over Austin Aries, which didn't click, even though both have had some really strong matches of late. So it's funny that even the live reports, for, for all we know, could have come from Gabe. You know, get to, even it was acknowledged that like 
for some reason these two just didn't click. Although, ironically, I haven't seen this match in a long time. I'd have to dig out my VHS tapes and my VCR. But kind of an interesting trivia note, Matt. Uh, the 2004 Ted Petty Invitational for IWA itself, which is like one of the most star-studded kind of a who's who of indie wrestling tournaments ever. It's it, unbelievable. It, if you just watch like the highlight video of the entrances, it's just like, what? He was in it? And he was in it? And he was in it? I didn't even know he was famous yet. And he was in it? Like, it's just insane. It took place literally one week after Glory by Honor 3, and a first-round match was CM Punk versus Austin Aries. And I'm yeah. pretty sure in my memory is that match was significantly better than this. Yeah, it so, definitely was. So in that case, it might have been Ring of Honor's loss might have been a IWA Mid-South's game because maybe this helped them work out the kinks, you know? Yeah, can I, and, can I actually just do an interlude and list all the people in this freaking tournament? Go ahead. Yeah, so in the 2004 Ted Petty Invitational, think about this based on now. Samoa Joe, Roderick Strong, Nigel McGuinness, Claudio Castagnoli, a.k.a. Cesaro, um, Chris Sabin, Rain Man, okay, you know, Rain Man, <laughs> Danny Daniels, Todd Sexton, but then AJ Styles, Jimmy Rave, Matt Seidel, Sauronaro, Super Dragon was in it, <laughs> Eric Cannon, P.D. Williams, B.J. Whitmer, Chris Hero, Mike Quackenbush, Nate Webb, Hallow Wicked, CM Punk, Austin Aries, Brian Danielson, Alex Shelley. All of them in the same tournament. And how many people, you know, attended those events, like in, in terms of in person? You're, you're, you're talking about maybe like, what, 300 at most? Maybe yeah, less? For those who, like, I believe, don't quote me on this, it, it, this show should be either either on High Spots, video streaming service, or maybe even um, uh, pro wrestling, independent pro wrestling's website. I forget the name of their service, forgive me, but there's a, there's a uh, site that does indie pro wrestling streaming that has a lot of old IWA Mid-South shows. But these three shows, it was a three-day, of it was a triple-shot weekend, and these shows are absolutely worth revisiting for both just quality and just the holy shit. Look at this collection of talent. And Matt, just to add to that, let's point out, those weren't the only matches on the shows because no. Ian Rotten was famous for running crazy long cards with other matches. So Jimmy Jacobs defeated Delirious in a ladder match yeah. on the first night. Um uh, Sal Renaro was on night two. Ian Rotten, of course, the owner, was there. Mercedes, Larry, Mercedes, Martinez, you know, all the way back in 2004. Yeah, um, Larry Sweeney, um, the Ed, Daisy Hayes. Eddie Kingston. Eddie Kingston. Yeah. Um, just, like, the, the insane number of, like, it, it's a better card than pretty much probably any indie wrestling show ever. Yeah, it definitely, definitely, number of names. definitely on paper, it's like the most star-studded, packed indie show I could think of. Um, You're getting almost all the best Ring of Honor talent, plus guys that weren't booked at this time, like Mike Quackenbush. You know, like yeah. Well, who, who who's really missing from this for ROH? Basically, just Homicide and the Briscoes, right? Like that's pretty yeah. much it. Yeah. And Homicide was hurt in a car accident, so, right? I mean, just right. And the Briscoes were hurt, so yeah, like just. Just an insane, insane talent. So yeah, yeah I always love revisiting that show because that is just such a crazy event. But was it um, wasn't the only Ted Petty Invitational that had an incredible uh, group of wrestlers on it. Two thousand five was also pretty good. Um, Two thousand sixes was also pretty. You know, just, they had a, they basically had a lot of great ones. Um, 
if for over the years. Actually, if you go to the, I'm looking at the Wikipedia right now. If you go to 2007, you got uh, even a young Chuck Taylor appearing on on that. So um, uh, Joey Ryan, just Ricochet was on was on it. So Ted Petty Invitational is a go to event if you have that uh, that high spot service. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, um. After the match, Punk and Carino embrace. Uh, Punk gets on the mic and he tells Aries that he to- always told him that on Aries' best day and Punk's worst, Aries could never beat him. And he just showed why, because Punk is always one step ahead of Aries. Uh, Punk says that if Aries wants to make his name at Punk's expense, he's going to have to fuck with Punk's friends too. Uh, Gary Michael Capet at this point has made his way into if the you wanna be, If you want to be my lover. <laughs> he wants to know what the uh, the, the backstory is on, on Creo's return. And Gary reminds us the last time we saw Steve Creo in Ring of Honor was at the no ropes barbed wire match he had with the homicide the year before. Uh, Gary asks Steve, what the hell is he doing in Elizabeth, New Jersey? But before Creo can even say a word, homicide's music hits and out he comes in street clothes. Julia Smokes is right behind him. And then those two get in the ring and they stare Punk and Creo down. Homicide takes the mic and also brings up that the last time they were in the ring together, they were in that barbed wire match. Homicide says Crino beat him, but Homicide never tapped, bitch. Uh, Homicide says in February, he walked away from wrestling for a while in that famous angle, Matt, we talked about where Homicide acted like he was retiring forever and then came back almost immediately. Yes. Uh, well, in the, in the same promo, he asked that he was retiring forever and then said, I will definitely be back. That is still one of my – recapping that promo, I forget what show, but it is still one of my favorite moments. The last in, stand. Yeah, in Through the Years history was recapping that promo. Yes. Um, so he says, in November after the barbed wire match, Creel offered Homicide his hand. And Homicide says, I didn't take it then because I hate you. And that's a shoot. I always hate when Homicide always goes, I hate you, but that's a shoot. He always has to do that. Homicide starts yelling at specific fans in the crowd. He uses a homophobic slur. To get a big pop for one right before he goes back to Carino. Homicide says that Carino was right about something though, which is that Ring of Honor sucks, their management sucks, their fans suck. And then we get an awkward cut to cut out a comment Homicide makes, which we'll talk about in a second. Homicide then we see him say that he now will shake Carino's hand because he was right about Ring of Honor sucking. The crowd loudly chants shut the fuck up at Homicide. So he's actually something that he doesn't always isn't always able to do because people love Homicide. He's getting some real heel heat here. Well, and, he he did the, he did a good thing if he wanted to get heel heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, it, it's coming. Um Homicide crosses his uh, smokes has to hold Homicide from jumping into the crowd. Homicide crosses his heart, I guess, as a show of honesty, and he asks Carino again to shake his hand, says he'll give him the respect he deserves. Carino stands still for a bit, kind of teasing the moment, until Punk pushes him into the corner. He tells Carino not to do it. Homicide and Punk shove each other, and Homicide tells Punk to mind his business. Homicide says Punk doesn't want problems with the Rottweilers. Just look at the Briscoes, I guess maybe implying that, like, he did something to Mark Briscoe's motorcycle? I, I don't know. Um... Homicide asks again for a Carino handshake, but Punk stands in between them. Carino and Punk leave as Carino keeps holding up one finger, I guess suggesting that he wants to have one more match with Homicide, even though the way he left Ring of Honor last time was kind of like him being done with Homicide forever. Anyway, Homicide proceeds to have a tantrum. He flips over the timekeeper's table. He kicks the barricade. He throws chairs around ringside. The crowd chants Homicide. Homicide and Smokes yell at one particular ringside fan, and the segment ends. So if you're wondering watching this, what is the weird, awkward cut that is not in any way really well hidden? We'll go to the PW Torch, 
On the September 11th Ring of Honor show in New Jersey, Homicide attempted to draw heel heat by claiming that he wished the Ring of Honor fans had been in the World Trade Center on 9-11. The company and Homicide himself quickly issued an apology. Between comments like this and this one and AOL Instant Messenger, Ring of Honor is finding problems for themselves in the strangest places. Torch VIP member Liam Harvester says, quote, on the official Ring of Honor board, Gabe posted an apology from Homicide as one as well as as well as one from himself on behalf of Ring of Honor. That's a very classic classy act. While I personally don't think Homicide crossed the line in trying to get heat from a crowd that didn't give him any, it was instilled the right thing to do because I can understand why it would offend people. JBL and Vince should learn from this because JBL had recently been in trouble for the goose stepping during a uh, German WWE house show. And then finally, Matt, before I throw it to you, um, The Observer wrote on the same incident, Dave wrote, in the tasteless remark, maybe of the year, Homicide said that he wished that Ring of Honor fans were in the World Trade Center on 9-11. Gabe Sapolsky said that that was the one negative about the show, and he didn't want it, and he immediately apologized for it. And Like he got on the microphone and apologized for it? Uh, no, not live, but... Yeah. Uh, I guess Gabe, the point was Gabe, like, went to the internet. Like, if this wasn't a thing where they was waiting for days, like, they immediately knew, like... Gotcha. Homicide shouldn't have fucking <laughs> said this. You know? I mean, the easy way to get out of it was Homicide just say, no, I meant, I wish they were in the World Trade Center on 9-11-2000. It was a beautiful day. They could have gone to Windows on the World. It would have been great. <laughs> oh, God, but, yeah. <laughs> this, it's, been long, it's been long enough that I can make that joke, right? <laughs> yeah, um... Nineteen I, I, years. I, I, we're already at the new tragedy, so the old tragedy is uh, yeah, exactly. It's a World War Two thing where we can make yeah. jokes about Hitler now. Exactly. Yeah. Were were you and I? Were you in that new thread order chat on the actual nine eleven? Yes, the ch- there was there used for those who don't know that this is very inside baseball. But me and Matt first ca- came to know each other. And uh, when we were teenagers on a old uh, message board that was called the New Thread Order, which was an outgroup growing of a of a Scott Keith message board. So this is way back. And, and it's, if anyone remembers the NWWWO, that was the original message board that had – well, we don't have to get into it, but that's how we knew each other. Yeah, there was a lot of people on the fringes of things like current sure dog writer Tom Feely, Justin Shapiro, who people who listen to our show will know, like a bunch of people. CRZ. Uh, exactly, CRZ. So, uh, but anyway, there was a very famous chat that I still remember, which was right after I woke up on 9 11. We, we always had a daily AOL chat where it was just always on and people were coming in and out. And I remember after seeing that 9 11 had happened, logging on. And as soon as I log on, I get a chat a chat invite that just says the chat, you would have been invited to chat in a room titled Flee to Canada. And it was just <laughs> everybody being scared, trying to find out who in New York was okay. Um, Feely, Feely was, we were all worried about him because we didn't hear from him for hours. Yeah, there was, I think, multiple people in New York where we were literally, like, waiting to see if they were going to come online. I was upstate at college. Yeah, safe and sound. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, Matt, uh, that, quite a detour, but I don't know what much there is to say about that comment, except, I guess, that, like, uh, I think it would be even worse now, the reaction to it. I, they, they got off light compared to what the war, what I think people would treat them. Like right now, for example, if wrestling comes back in like a month, if someone made a joke about like the racial riots or even COVID probably, 
Like if Homicide said in a month from now, I hope you get COVID, I think the reaction would be worse than they got for this. Well, mainly because of Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it is kind of interesting that they're even though Creel was kind of a heel and Homicide was a face, they're having to bring him back now where Creel was the face as this ally to Punk and Homicide is now the heel even though he's actually giving Creel what he kind of always wanted, which is respect from Homicide. And it's like this weird having to, because the times have changed since Creel left and the characters have all changed that Creel is kind of walking back to everything being kind of flipped to complete 180. It's not the only, it's not the first time in wrestling that something like that has happened also. No. But um yeah, it, it was this this was a good segment I thought other than the homophobic comments and what was cut out. Like it it made the show feel big. Like it felt like a big segment for the show, but also it was interesting to see the crowd reacting big to everybody except for CM Punk. Like that's very rare in ROH for the crowd just to not give a shit about Punk compared to the other people on the stage. Punk was an interesting guy. You you kind of touched on this earlier, but Punk was an interesting guy where a lot of times when you hear talk or watch old wrestling, you always hear stories of like, when this guy was working the loop, like this city really liked them, but this city was never as big on him. In wrestling nowadays, you don't notice that as much, but Punk, I feel like, especially in this era, was kind of that guy where for some reason, certain cities were more pro-Punk than others and not just his hometown, you know, like Chicago either. Like there was definitely cities that were more anti-punk than others, even when he was a face. Yeah, I mean, Rex Plex in particular, which is funny because when he won the title in 2005, that was in New Jersey, in another town in New Jersey, and they were so into him there, but yeah. but at the Rex Plex, they just never got, got him. You know, I don't know what it was. Um, but hey, the quirks of wrestling makes it interesting. Yeah. And that brings us to another another short match, although we'll get into a little bit of the background why it was so short. BJ Whitmer and Dan Moff defeated Chicano and Slash Venom with Alice in Danger in three minutes, six seconds, when Whitmer pinned Chicano after he hit him with a wrist clutch exploder onto an open chair. So before the match, Alice in Danger runs to the ring and she screams on the mic as usual about how she gave Moth and Whitmer everything. She wants revenge. And of course, the whole storyline continues to be Alice in Danger owns Moth and Whitmer's contract. So even though they quit her stable, the prophecy, she's now booking them in all sorts of matches there where she wants these people to just destroy them. And the gimmick tonight is the idea that even though Moth and Whitmer are in the main event, which is a big multi-team match for the tag titles she's double booked them against uh chicano and slash venom who are uh slash venom is you might be better known to some as flash flanagan who i think worked in like developmental for a while and these two guys were they had uh we talked about i think on a very recent show that ring of honor a few of their guys had worked in puerto rico for like a, a show that was branded like ring of honor versus iwa puerto rico or whatever and that i these two guys were on the show so i'm wondering if these Maybe I just impressed people. And this match only went 306. And I thought, man, I was writing in my notes like, why does Ring of Honor all so often do this where they book new guys and then they give them barely any time to shine? But Matt, then I read this and it kind of tells you sometimes you can't make assumptions because Dave wrote in The Observer, 
when it comes to this match, they were told to go six minutes and they rushed so much. They were done in three minutes, six seconds. So people only got a taste of Venom and Chicano, but what they did looked good, including Venom doing a Sabu triple jump spot to the floor, just because of the cost of, of just because of the cost of bringing them in from Puerto Rico, they don't look to be back anytime soon, even though Sapolsky liked both of them. So kind of sad because, I guess you, you can tell me what you thought, but I thought they did look good in the little bit we got to see from them here. Yeah, I would say because you never saw them again in ROH, I was going to assume this was just a total squash, but it wasn't. Like They they, got, they actually got to control a little bit, and Venom hit that um, that triple jump, jump moonsault. Um, you know, Chicano got to do it swanton, but he missed. And then Whitmer did the exploder, and the match was over. Um it was just like, yeah, they looked good, I guess, but the match was so nothing. Like it wasn't even a squash. Like it was just short. <laughs> you know, it's, you can't really be a, swa- a squash if you're losing the whole match and then just win at the end, right? That's not really what a squash is. It was just super duper short, and really the main focus was on um, danger. You know, dressed kind of crazy, like she's dressed in like a like a raggedy like gown or dress, and then she has like the long gloves and her hair is all disheveled. So she's supposed to have been going crazy. And also, Moff had the American flag over his head coming down, and he was slapping everybody's hand. And it just made me think, will wrestlers ever slap hands ever again? That's something yeah, that's, I'm thinking of. That's – that's I, I'm you know what? For some reason, I feel like wrestling will be one of the things that does not change. They will go back to just – everything yeah i mean i guess if you're i guess if you're like you know have to be physical with somebody you might as well slap the hands of a bunch of strangers and not and not wash it for a long time (laughs) i feel like that's what's gonna do is it's gonna be one of those things where it's like you're in for a penny in for a pound like wrestling such a thing where it's like if i'm already doing this much physical contact what's some more like yeah um I wrote my notes. Moth comes to the ring draped in the American flag in case you were wondering if he was supposed to be a face this week. Yeah, exactly. Oh, go on. No, I was just going to say, yeah, I even wrote the same thing. I said, wow, true baby face. You don't really see guys slapping hands in ROH that much. Um, but Moth was doing it. So, yeah, very short match. It, it must happen, but it is kind of interesting. I don't hear too many examples of a match where the guys actually rushed f- through and, like, didn't make use of the time they were given. Like... I wonder if that was just nerves or something or what, but the idea that you got six minutes and you actually do it in half the time, but there were some chair shots. It was a big brawl and, you know, some big, crazy, couple crazy moves. And uh, so, but of course the big thing is it's all leading up to what comes up after, after the match, Danger gets in the ring and she browbeats Chicano and Slash Venom for not being able to take out Moth and Whitmer. Uh, Chicano and Slash Venom just exit the ring, and they, which of course leaves Alice and Danger alone in the ring with an angry Moth and Whitmer. Danger begins to scream and panic when out of nowhere, Mick Foley walks to the ring and breaks it up. The crowd just goes nuts. They start a huge Foley chant. Uh, Moth and Whitmer bail to the floor, which leaves Mick alone in the ring with Alice and Danger. Danger says, oh my God, you came. And Foley, who's grabbed a mic, says, that's exactly what my wife said last night, except she added the words, so quickly, again, which gets a big laugh. Uh, Mick says he doesn't mean to be mean to Allison because he finds her moderately attractive in a skeezy, psychotic kind of way. Uh, Foley then does his cheap pot spot where he plugs, you know, that he's in Elizabeth, New Jersey at the Rexplex. Foley tells her to take her moderately attractive face and get out of his ring, which she does. Foley is then interrupted by Prince Nana and the rest of the embassy. 
Nana gives hugs to, I mean, fully gives hugs to the outcast killers and Nana. And then he high fives Jimmy Rave, at which point I wrote in my notes, this is awesome. For some reason, it was just, it still felt like a cool, like meeting of two worlds moment, even in, even in 2020 to see Mick Foley, like hug the outcast killers and high five Jimmy Rave. Anyway, um, Nana says, Mick, it's good to have you in the embassy, my friend. Yeah. And Foley says, Nana assumes because I hug you guys that I'm joining you, but really I'm just a good hugger and I wanted to show off that skill. Foley then says, you guys, you know, thought I would join you. And he does this huge, big fake laugh to answer them. And um, he dares them to come on if they want to fight him. He lays out the killers with mic shots. He drops Nana with a punch, but then he gets low blowed by Jimmy Rave. The embassy all start putting the boots to Mick. Generation next then run in to join in and start beating down Foley. And then Moth and Whitmer run back in the ring. They chase them all the way, just the two of them on their own. Foley recovers. And he says he came to Ring of Honor because he received a phone call a few weeks earlier asking him how he'd like to come to Ring of Honor. Mick says he heard all about Ring of Honor, but he's not going to associate with something he can't be proud of. So he asked Ring of Honor to send him some tapes, send him some DVDs too. Well, I guess he just, he said tapes and then he said DVDs. I wonder if he was like, tape sounds kind of old fashioned. Anyway, Foley goes, I watched them. And after just a few minutes, I said, holy shit. And I don't curse often. The crowd's like eating this up at this point. Foley says if he had any athletic ability, he'd be stealing all the moves he saw. But what impressed him the most wasn't the moves, but the attitude saying when he was coming up wrestling, when he was coming up, wrestling wasn't about how much merch you could sell, but about giving the fans the best shows possible. Foley says in WWE, he tried to do that, but he admits that sometimes I'd be, he'd be in front of 20,000 fans and he'd think to himself, take it easy. So he could come back and work in front of those same 20,000 of fans again. One day Mick says the guys in ring of honor don't think that way. And he singled out Moth and Whitmer by name who, who, who were remained, who had remained in the ring during this entire Foley promo. Uh, Foley says they're like him back when he was trying to have the best match every single Single night. Uh, Foley says he knows Ring of Honor is about pure wrestling, but he says he saw something else in those DVDs. He saw Jay Briscoe damn near bleed to death. He saw Moth and Whitmer in a street fight he'd be proud to call his own. He saw Abdul the Butcher and he saw the Scramble Cage. Foley says he came to Ring of Honor to pay respect to the new legends in the business and to say that Ring of Honor stands for Ring of Hardcore. Mick finally ends. He says, by have a nice day. He shakes Moth and Whitmer's hands and leaves and he's slapping and hugging fans on the way out. Um... Matt, I thought this, uh, I talked for a while, so I think you should get the first evidence, but I'll just say, I thought this was a really, we've, we'll see a lot of these kind of big legend comes in and puts over ring of honor promos. I thought this was a really good one. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the originals, right? Like, yeah. And he was so over, he's got such a huge pop. I will say this before I get into that. Um, so at the end of the match, danger, like reamed out venom and Chicano, right? Yeah. And I realized in that moment that those two guys do not fit in ROH at all because they just walked away without gratuitously beating her up <laughs> or calling her a misogynistic name. And I'm pretty sure that one of Moth and Whitmer, when they corner her before Foley comes out, I am pretty sure one of them calls her the C-word. So they fit into Ring of Honor. Um, Venom and Chicano, they do not. So good well, choice. Like your point before, like Moth is definitely a face right now in yeah. Ring of Honor. By um, Ring of Honor standards, yes. Yeah. Saying the c word to a woman made him a face. Um, they've been done. They're, they they're you know they're going super face. Yeah, exactly. Marcos. Marcos. But but Foley, um, you know Foley was great here. Um, I don't know. 
that I totally think that the um, that the Ring of Hardcore thing worked the way they wanted to. It didn't really amount to much. I don't know if you necessarily would have known that at the time, right? It it amounted to some matches with like the Carnage Crew and Moff and Whitmer, right? Which is not like anyone's dream match as much as those two teams, you know, can be good. Um, you know, it would fully eventually transition to his feud with Samoa Joe that didn't actually turn into anything really either, right? Because yeah. um, Foley didn't end up doing the match. Um, yeah. But um, just as far as watching a guy be entertaining and feel like a big star, this was good. And he had something to say, and he was, it was actually of substance. You could tell he really did watch those DVDs, because yeah. of course he did, right? It's, it's McFoley. Um, you know, he loves wrestling. So, um, so in that sense, I would say it wasn't a great segment in that it didn't, like, change much. But it was such a good segment. Like, Foley was so good. He was so – he was so um, – he just had such star power, such charisma, such ease – and, you know, I mean, we know he's one of the great promos of all time, and he gave one of the great promos in ROH by, up to that point. Yeah I, I, yeah, I think the key to this is, like you said, we're, we're going to see a, lot, a bunch of these in Ring of Honor. Like you said, this is one of the first. But um, a lot of these, you know, you get the key with these kind of promos where the big legend comes in is like, you know, I love Ring of Honor. You guys are the new whatever we thing I was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. This is it. Insert promotion here. Um, a lot of them just, you know, the, the, the ones that are average or bad come off as you don't really mean it. You, you just aren't barely know anything about this. You just came here cause you got paid, but Foley's was detailed enough and that it, it came off as genuine. Uh, and, uh, he definitely, when he mentioned like the matches to support the ring of hardcore thing, he brought up the right matches. Like though, like if you're going to bring up the, the more brutal aspects of ring of, Honor, ring of honor that are really cool and that were relatively recent, like the the street fight with Moff and Whitmer versus um, Ace and Punk and the Jay Briscoe C- Joe Cage match those are the two matches to bring up other than maybe the Homicide Carino matches so and uh, I guess the other thing is I agree, I completely agree with you about this would lead to a uh, a not 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 maybe not as cool as it could have been like hardcore versus uh, pure wrestling kind of phil- philosophical feud with Rick Steamboat. And we might have Ric Flair to blame for that, Matt, because I'm going to read from The Observer. When he would recap this Mick Foley promo, Dave wrote, Foley then said that if he had any athletic ability, and then Dave wrote in brackets, a jab at Ric Flair, although I'm not sure people caught it, he would steal some of the moves he saw. And then Dave wrote later, the idea is to do a hardcore versus wrestling feud, again, based on Flair's comments in his book. So for those who people don't know what Dave's talking about here, this was right around the time or not too long after uh, Ric Flair's autobiography had come out to be the man. And uh, Flair said some not flattery, flattering things about McFoley. And Mick responded. In fact, I believe this was the weekend where Mick recorded his straight shooting shoot interview DVD for Ring of Honor, which I if you if you want what's kind of like a sequel to Mick Foley's first two books, the, it, it's a good shoot interview DVD. I'm sure it's not in print. You'd have to go out and try and find it. But there is a whole section of that DVD where Gabe literally just reads line by line the crap um, Ric Flair said about Mick Foley. And Mick just responds to it line by line to the point where you're almost like, Maybe this is going a little too hard in this direction, but this was like a big topic of conversation in 2004. So it's kind of interesting. I wouldn't think until I did the research and was reminded that 
I guess a lot of it was like that. Like even like Dave wrote that that line where Foley just said, if I had any athletic ability, I'd steal those moves. I just took that at face value until I read this and was reminded apparently that that was one of the things Flair wrote in his book, that, which was that Foley had zero athletic ability and you know couldn't really wrestle and all of that stuff. Yeah, um, you know it's very memorable. It led to some actual like on TV feuds between Mick Foley and Ric Flair yeah. in both WWE and in a uh, TNA later. Um, but this was like the first pass at addressing it on a wrestling show. And yeah, you're right. It did it did kind of go over my head even watching it back. Like that's what he was referring to. Yeah, if I guess in a weird way, Ring of Honor basically tried to do the Mick Foley Ric Flair feud. Before WWE did it, just without just, just without Ric Flair, yeah, and with Rick Steamboat as like the proxy for Flair, and without actually doing matches with Mick Foley, but yeah. they tried their best to kind of get onto that train. They and they would have been the first to do it. It's just they couldn't actually get Mick to wrestle. And Flair and Steamboat, I mean Flair and um, Foley had some great promos relating to that in WWE a couple of years later. Yeah. Um, we cut backstage at this point to Gary Michael Capetta. He's with, it's intermission. He's joined by John Walters. Uh, he tells John what Joe said tonight about the pure title not being worth anything. He asks if uh, he has any comments for the fans. Walters is really mad. He's upset about it. He says the fans didn't think it was possible for him to be the champ. He says all the doubters are going to eat their words. And then Walters just says he's going to march to the ring and defend his title. Walters, not the most compelling promo guy. No, the one the one thing that was noteworthy about this promo was that Walter sounded a little bit heelish, right? Yeah. Like he sounded angry, and we know he does turn heel in the not too distant future, but not yet. And he sounded very angry at the fans. They don't believe in me. They don't think I can win. There are many doubters out there. He's going to prove them wrong, you know. So there was that, but otherwise, not the best promo. I actually noticed that. I noticed that too. I'm glad you pointed that out because. Uh, yeah, like later when he comes up, I believe like Walters is slapping hands and I felt like it's really weird because, yeah, like the promo, while it's not a heel promo, it definitely has like that almost Matt Stryker vibe where it's like, you know, you fans don't believe in me, you don't like me and that then to see him come out and be like slapping hands like he's Dan Moth with an American flag, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a weird two blending things on the same show but it was a, it was i wonder if it was actually even an intentional tease for the heel turner if they even decided that was going to happen yet i don't yeah, know yeah i'm not sure um elsewhere backstage sugar sean price was with with walter's opponent nigel mcginnis nigel says he's been in ring of honor for 13 months now which seems crazy to, uh, i guess because he's semi-regular and right they took so long to do the podcast his 13 his first like his first match was 13 months earlier but he was not on a lot of the shows. Yeah. He says he's both nervous and excited for tonight. He says Ring of Honor officials have told him from here on out he's being booked on every show. So tonight he's got to start that run strong, either winning or stealing the show trying. Nigel says he isn't in the USA to play. He's in it to win it, which I believe is the first time he ever says that catchphrase in Ring of Honor. It is. And he doesn't usually use the USA to play part. In it yeah. to win it, though, we hear that a lot over the next year or so. Yeah. So, um, and that brings us to Brian Danielson defeating Alex Shelley via submission in 19 minutes, 21 seconds with the cattle mutilation. Um, on paper, this is like kind of a dr technical dream match for the era. Matt, how did you think it was in, uh, in practice? Yeah, I bet when this match was signed, people were freaking out. Like they were like, holy shit, this match is going to be awesome, right? Um, yeah. 
I um I thought it was I thought it was very very good. Like I didn't think it was amazing. It wasn't like the best these guys could do with each other. But I thought it was really good. They do a lot of neat sequences. My favorite part of the match was um was when like the period where Danielson was like just like picking Shelly apart. Like there was a part like near the middle of the match where he's just like he's just like just taking him apart and with with his with his holds and all this stuff like hitting his um I'm trying to get to the part where it's like yeah like going against the neck he does like arm and then does arm breakers and my we know you know my favorite things about Danielson from this era is that he's just willing to do the same move over and over and over again which a lot of wrestlers don't do but like just uh, logically it makes such um good sense you know to be like well if this move is working just keep doing it and you know, like he would do it against Aries with the um, the, body the body slams, but also just like arm breaker after arm breaker after arm breaker. Um, I let you know, like he would slap him multiple times. He even does like a camel clutch that looks brutal. Like he does like a cross face with the camel clutch. Do you notice how like Danielson in this era? And I don't think it actually is true forever with him. But in this era, any hold that he does, even if it's the simplest hold, just looks so much more brutal than when anyone else does it. Um, do you notice that? Yeah, and the other thing, it's not just that it looks more brutal, but I feel like. They say like the difference between guys like Chris Benoit or Eddie Guerrero and other wrestlers was other wrestlers would learn a move until they could do it, and and they would learn a move until they could do it like perfect. And I feel like you when you see Danielson, like even on the moves where it looks brutal, like it looks like, even the simplest move looks special when he does. It's like he knows just he just is absolutely like completely comfortable with doing it. Yes, I agree. He just and he he's like I'm not only I'm not going to learn it learn it perfectly. I'm actually just going to do it better, and yeah. and that's what he does. Um, as far as like the rest of the match, because that's my favorite part. Like that, I just can watch that all day. But um, I thought the crowd was pretty amped up for this. Um, you know, Shelley did some good stuff too. You know, uh, working on the neck. Um, you know, does a drop kick to the back of the neck. Even does a border city stretch early, and Dragon gets the ropes very, very quickly. Um, at one point, he does this thing where he's like, you know, the the move that Shelley does, where he gets the guy's head between his legs and just like bounces it into the mat over and over again. Mm-hmm. He does that into to, he does that to Danielson. And when I see that, I always think about Danielson's you know concussions. Because it's yeah. like, obviously his head is hitting the mat. Not at the force that we're supposed to believe, but like, you know, we know now what Danielson has been through concussion-wise. Um, at one point, Punk actually says that Shelly is at a weight and a height disadvantage to Danielson. And that didn't seem obvious to me, that Danielson no. was either bigger or, or taller than Shelly. Um, but maybe he is. I mean, Punk would know better than me, right? He stood next to both of them. Um, did, but does that seem true to you? That, that, that it was, it's not like a noticeable, like where you'd go, that's a huge advantage. Like yeah. you would never think if someone is one inch taller than you or even two, oh, that height advantage is really going to come into play. Yeah. But I, I even just like the, the bulkiness, like, cause Danielson was not at his biggest muscle wise in 2004. I would actually say Shelly probably has a little, I would, if you asked me which of those two guys at this point weighed more, I'd say Shelly. Just like, based, just based on eyeballing it. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little softer and has like a little little bit more bulk maybe and Danielson's more a little bit slimmer like more yeah. athletic yeah I agree um you know then um there's uh they, they 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 bring up some Foley talk here Punk actually I was surprised took a real stand against Foley he was like this isn't ring of hardcore this is this is about wrestling this is ring of honor I thought that was interesting um 
I don't know if Punk really gets too involved with the Foley stuff. I don't think he really does. Um, but as far as like coming down the stretch, you know, they do more, you know, they do more picking apart stuff where, um, where Danielson, like he, um, he twists Shelly's arm and elbow and wrist all while digging Shelly's, digging his knee into Shelly's back. Then he snaps the arm back. It's just, I love that stuff. Um, Danielson then gets the cattle mutilation. Shelly gets to the ropes quickly. Um, they do one of those, um where Shelly reverses the top rope belly to back into a cross body cover, but then Danielson reverses that into his own cover. That's always fun. I've seen Danielson do that a few times, actually. He might have even done that against Aries. I'm not sure. Um, but so Aries, I mean, Dragon does the airplane spin, and Shelly actually breaks it up by dragging Dragon's legs, but Dragon just, like, butt drops on him, like, and, and then hits the diving headbutt for two. Um... So Shelly hits the shell shock just out of nowhere because he's been getting kind of controlled for a while. But he gets the shell shock out of nowhere, goes for the border shitty stretch. Dragon makes the ropes. Shelly goes right back to dropping Dragon's neck twice twice over his knee. And then his, uh, his arm gives out when he's trying a suplex, and that allows Dragon to hit a big European upper, uppercut off the middle rope. Um, they do this uh, cool final sequence. Dragon gets the cattle mutilation. Shelly reverses back into the border city stretch. Dragon actually stands up in the Border City stretch and hits the Regal Plex and goes right back into the Cattle Mutilation, and then Shelly taps. I thought the final sequence was really good. I thought they were definitely holding a little bit back, but they told a solid story. The crowd was up for it, um, and it was good. It was very good. I thought it was... I would put this match at the very good level, and I and I know they could do even better. Uh, I would put this just at a at a, at a solid good. I, I was disappointed, but I still enjoyed the match. But I think one of those things is I forgot. You know, this is a match I had seen a long time ago, and I forgot how I felt about. It. And when I see Brian Danielson versus Alex Shelley in 2004, and they get 19 minutes, you know, you, you like you were saying, you expect they could do better. I was I was expecting to see like this hidden gem, and it, it's it's just good to me. But I feel like it's a match where. Brian Danielson is one of my favorite, if not my favorite wrestler of all time. And, but if, you know, everyone has flaws. And if there is a flaw with Danielson is very occasionally some of his matches, um, like you can tell they're a lot. He loves to call stuff in the ring, which is normally great, but occasionally sometimes stuff doesn't really hang together. Like it feels a little, almost too called in the ring. Like your turn to decide to do what you want to do. And I turn, and I feel like, um, this match, it doesn't really co- get cohesive in a way. Like, there's something that feels a little, just a little bit off until about halfway through. And that's when you talked about, and I completely agree with you about, like, the best part of this match is, like, that point in the mi- starting in the middle where Daniels is just like, I'm going to dissect this Alex Shelley. Like, I'm going to destroy his arm. I'm going to stretch him. I'm going to do moves over and over. And I think I, in, in my notes, I wrote something like, this match is never better than when Danielson is just stretching the hell out of Alex Shelley and Alex Shelley's like begging off. Like that's fantastic. And like you said, I could watch that all I could watch that all day. Like that that I Danielson is the kind of guy where so many wrestlers they have the, the worst part of their wrestling is, is like when they're just in control for an extended stretch, like and making that interesting. That's like one of Danielson's strengths. He just it's a pleasure to watch him just in control, just grinding a guy down. It, it, it's so fun. Um, another little problem I had with the match was 
I thought all of uh, Danielson's arm work was really good, and of course it plays into the finish. I felt like Shelley worked on Danielson's a leg a little bit, almost enough that the announcers ca- like call attention to it. But then, like late in the match, it doesn't really work out. And, and granted, going by Dame's uh, suggestion, since he didn't do the leg <laughs> that much, I'm not. Go expecting- to the wiki. Go to the wiki if you don't remember what that means. <laughs> Dame suggestion lets me know that since he didn't work on the leg that long, I shouldn't really be that upset that they didn't really focus on much going forward because they didn't ask you to devote too much of my time to it. But it is one of those things where especially where Shelly, like when Shelly's hitting his big moves at the end, he's hitting the shell shock. He's doing the border city stretch multiple times. And there are things that they don't really play into what he was doing earlier because those moves don't touch the legs at all. But Definitely, like you said, I felt like these two could have a better match, uh, and, and it's a match I really want to see. I really want to see a great, and, and I, I think another thing that maybe hurts this match, like, again, it's a good match. I feel like I'm not being as fair to it as I should be because my expectations were too high because I, I do agree with a lot of what you said, but I think another thing is, unfortunately for Shelley. Danielson had just wrestled Austin Aries multiple times in legit great matches. And because Shelley and Aries are the top two guys in that stable, I think your mind naturally compares them, which is really unfair, especially because one of those matches was incredibly long. But it is one of those things. It is an interesting thing to see where Shelley is in the booking, where technically he's the leader of Generation Next, yet Aries is the guy who gets to beat Danielson. Shelley doesn't, you know, and also, also those are main events and this is a mid card match. Exactly. So even though technically Shelley's higher on the totem pole in, in kayfabe, quote unquote, you know, he's not really in, in, in stuff like this treated like that. Right. You, you could, you could already tell by this point who Gabe's favorite was in generation next, even though Shelley does get a lot of mic time and get a lot of, um, you know, get a lot of attention. Um, I, um, I see what your point about this match. As far as I could go, there were really no flaws in this match that really got to me. The only reason I wouldn't go full, you know, great with this match is because I don't think they were going for that. They worked this match like a good mid-card match, and to me, that's what it was. If they had wrestled the main event, I think they would have done more, and I think it would have been more epic. This is one of those matches where if two other guys did it, I'd probably have a more positive-sounding review, even though it would be the exact same match, just because... I, I know, like you said, that these guys can do better. Like they're they're good enough that you're expecting for what where these guys top out at is much higher than this. I've even um, seen I've even seen a better match between the two of them. <laughs> yeah. So um it's also interesting, Shelly came into the match selling his arm, like when it when he came down even in his ring entrance, and Gay on commentary said that it's from when he was running away from Mick Foley, he banged his arm on the entrance way, which I don't know if that's a true thing or not, but it's funny because I don't think we ever saw that when it happened. And also it's funny because normally when a guy gets hurt, you like you want to give credit to somebody to kind of put them over, and instead they just were legit like yeah, he banged his arm when he was running away from somebody. So that's why it's hurt. Um, and there was another moment, Matt, I don't know if you noticed this, where Danielson lifts Shelly up to like sit him down the top turnbuckle for a move. And he, you can tell Danielson's not doing this on purpose, but Shelly lands down on the buckle hard on his crotch. And you can hear a couple fans go, ouch, like, like that kind of male sympathy. And I don't think Shelly was seriously hurt. Another interesting thing is if you if you're like a Danielson super fan like we are, I feel like this was kind of like a moment in time for Danielson where 
Danielson talked about how he would always get bored with his personal appearance and he was constantly changing even his wrestling style. And this match felt like to me, at least in Ring of Honor, like the start of a new version of Danielson where he comes out in the black and maroon, like star Wars type robe. He's got the maroon trunks, which I always remember really vividly. Um, he does the, uh, the, it's one of the first times in ring of honor. He does like the surfboard where he's, um, constantly teasing where he's like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. And he's doing that. And this isn't the first time in ring of honor. He did the airplane spin, but it's one of the early times. And it's so interesting to see those two spots. Cause those are spots that would become like, Daniel, some of Danielson's most crowd pleasing moves where the crowd would like chant along or cheer for them. And in this match, they don't get much of a reaction because the crowd doesn't really know yet. Like they haven't seen them enough times to really get hooked on them. So it's like a really interesting moment in his career. I feel like, yeah, it's a transitional, you know, Danielson's been good about reinventing himself different points. And this is one of them, you know, it's a subtle reinvention, but it's there. And this is also, I guess we should mention, this is the moment on the show where you can start to hear it during the matches loud music in the background, like, and because the Rexplex was a big recreation center that had room for more than one thing at a time. And during the show, they had a concert. In fact, Gabe in a later match says, like, he actually apologized. I believe it's during Joe Doug Williams. He like I he apologizes for the sound because he says there's some crazy hippie show happening at the same time. And Punk's is saying, like, I think it's a revival. Which uh, kind of funny in the wake of where we are now in wrestling, but <laughs> it, it's uh, it, for the rest of the show from basically I would say around this match, during different matches you can hear like loud music, which was just it's a reminder that Ring of Honor is an independent wrestling company, and things like this happened. Gabe just doesn't like hippies. What can you say? <laughs> um, after the match, Danielson got a big standing ovation. Brian wants a handshake, which Shelley refused him before the match. Uh, Shelley refuses now after the match. He goes to leave the ring, but then he comes back in and he teases that he's going to shake the hand. He gets within inches of it before he backs out again of the ring to booze. Danielson goes to follow him out of the ring, so Shelley grabs a chair. Shelley slides it in the ring. Danielson like kicks it out of the ring immediately, which gets laughs from the crowd. Um, Shelley th- teases. It- oh, so, I was gonna say I thought Shelley felt like a star here. Like he was really good at working the crowd. I almost thought he had like MJF vibes. Shelley, to me, I've said this before, but he is never better than when he's like a chicken shit kind of goofy heel. Like he is so good at being like kind of the heel that gets gets his just desserts almost immediately after he does something. Like that, just that mo- the way he like he slides the chair in. And then Danielson immediately kicks the chair right back out. Like, what did you expect? And the way, like, Shelley reacts, he, he's just so good at that stuff. Yeah, he, he was he was very, very, very good here. I don't know if he ever reached this level as a character ever again, honestly. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess someone that's maybe more a TNA fan might, because I, I know that some of his more, more of his character work is probably there than anywhere else. He definitely did good stuff with Kevin Nash in, like, yeah. you know, with the, yeah, like later, uh, maybe 05 or 06, for sure. Uh, so Shelly uh, teases shaking Danielson's hand a third time. He leaves the ring yet again. They really do this for a while. Uh, Danielson gets on the mic and he calls Generation Next a bunch of sore losers. And he reminds them that he served Jack Evans on a recent show, which was cute. Uh, Brian says the Ring of Honor world champion is dodging him and he's waiting for him. But there's one more person coming to Ring of Honor that he wants to challenge. And before he even says it, a few fans start chanting Liger's name. They know what's coming. And Danielson says the match he and the crowd wants 
is him versus Jushin Liger. That gets a pop from the crowd, and then Danielson leaves. So throw out the official challenge, which we will get to see Danielson versus Liger. It is coming. Um, so that's that. That brings us to the pure title match, the Ring of Honor pure title. John Walters defeated Nigel McGuinness via submission in 16 minutes, 13 seconds, using a cross-arm stranglehold with body scissors. Um, Matt, I was surprised how much I liked this match. This was easily for me up to this point in the show, the best match on the show. Um, one of John Walters better matches up to this point. I would say this is outright like very good, like three and three quarter, close to four star, like really good match, just bordering on great. And one of the interesting things I think about this match is it doesn't feel like much like a pure wrestling title match. There's a bit of mat work, but there's a bit of everything in this match. It just feels like a normal 2004 indie wrestling match. And they both get to two rope breaks, but neither of them uses all three. The finish doesn't play into the pure rules at all. There's no real count out teases or anything like that. It's just two guys. It just happens to be a pure title match, but it's just two guys where sometimes in the match, it not every moment, but some moments it almost feels like they're trying to steal the show and have that match of the year contender like that will make them stars in one night. You, like especially late where Nigel comes off the top turnbuckle all the way to the floor on Walters. Like they're really pulling out some stops here, but this a good action act, like kind of regular for the era this is like this kind of match the way it's worked with a little bit of like strikes a little bit of mat work big moves like it, it, this is kind of what i think of when i think of just what's the generic style of indie wrestling at this point in history but like a good example of it um i like the early stuff where they're trading wrist locks back and forth where they're not doing it to make you think like oh they're both working over each other's wrist it's more just like i want to prove i'm a better wrestler than you so i can get out of this and you're going to put me right back in it, but then you're going to get out of, you know, back. It's like just who they're showing off who can be the better wrestler. Um, I like the near fall stuff. I mean, just all the bigger moves at the end. Like at this point, Nigel McGuinness has all his offense established, except the only thing is the rebound lariat. We haven't seen that yet, but like the tower of London gets the big pops. He's doing all his British stuff. It's just, yeah, I, I, um, I, this is kind of like when I was watching air, I mean, uh, Shelly, and Danielson hoping that would be like a hidden gem. This was the hidden gem I was thinking I was expecting that match to be. I, I I like this quite a bit. But am I crazy, Matt? No, you're not crazy, although I do think that I personally enjoyed Jelly versus Danielson more. Um but I thought this match was on a similar level to it. Um I thought this was a big moment for Nigel. Um it was really his first big singles match, wouldn't you say? Like you know, he's yeah. had other singles matches. He even had a match where he did a, you know, the heads, the head bump spot. But this is a title match in a major position that gets real time. And he has not had that yet before. And, and that match, that promo he did earlier where he said, like, this is my first match as, like, a full-timer that gets booked on every show. That's true. Like, th- that's absolutely a real thing, you know. So I'm sure he really was, like, aware of how big a match this was for him. And he was trying to um, really show show what he could do. He worked really hard here. And, you know, like, there was nothing so unique about the early work. You know, they were exchanging holds. I will say I was surprised at how up the crowd was for this. I did not expect them to be so into this match. But they really were. They were they were really, really into it. And, um, you know, they not... more into this than Aries CM Punk. Oh, oh my God, but... Yeah, like a hundred times more into this than Aries CM Punk, um, 
And, um, you know, I feel like the story was that early in the match, they were trying to show that Nigel and Walters were very even, right? Like they were, they, they were, you know, Punk even says at one point that Nigel was winning it hands down. And he says that, like, because Joe called Walters a paper champion, that was almost like weighing too heavily on Walters' mind and distracted him. You know, Nigel's was almost like no-selling at one point some of the big chops. Nigel actually does not no-sell a big forearm because that knocks him down. But he was no-selling some chops. And you know how in matches they do, like, the whole, like, roll-up reversal where they go from one roll-up into another? Um, Mm -hmm. Well, this match had a spot where they do it, but they just do the same roll-up back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that was fun. You don't see that very often, where they just go into one guy has the roll-up, the other guy has the roll-up. And it's not like a million different styles. It's just the same roll-up over and over again. I like that. Um, But um, at one point, um, Nigel actually is the victim of a big lariat by Walters. And you don't see Nigel being the victim of a lariat too often. Um, Walters actually, uh, uh, you know, is trying to, like, do some new stuff. He actually is working this match like he's a little bit of a bigger star than usual. At one point after his, like, top rope Rana, he does, like, this firing up, like, stomp thing before he hits his big lariat. Like, like almost like he's trying to get into some signature spots that the crowd gets into. And at least on this night, it's kind of working. Um, Walters is definitely being more intense. He's not being, like, a heel. He's, But I, I would say he's working... A bit more sadistically, um, which yeah. I think um, plays in, which works because Nigel is very popular here. Um, so I think that actually, um, you know, like at one point when not when Walters looks like he's going for the surfboard, instead he kind of just like pulls at Nigel's nose and his mouth, like just stuff like that, like just like a viciousness to him. Nothing, no eye poke, so he's not a heel. <laughs> but did you did you notice that like? Uh... He made a couple times. He made a, a Nigel give the crowd the finger, like he manipulated his hand into giving the middle finger. And I think one time, like I don't think uh, like either Gabe or Punk didn't realize what he was doing, or like he was like Nigel's giving the crowd the finger, and, and they were acting like Nigel was doing it willingly, but it was like Walters literally pushing his fingers and pulling up the middle finger. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I don't remember seeing that, but I, I like that's like that's like good subtle stuff, I think. Um, uh, Nigel actually, um, hits like a big cross body to the outside near the late in the match. And I feel like that's the sort of spot that makes a match seem bigger than it otherwise would. You don't usually see that from Nigel, even like as a main eventer. Um, and then at the end, you know, going to, um, you know, Walter's aggressiveness, he hits a cross arm lung blower, then another, then another, then does like a body scissors necktie combo for the win. And Nigel gives up and it's just like, Walters is being very aggressive. The one thing I would say is, I think if this was a main event, they would have gone a few more minutes and done a few more false finishes and you would have gotten to like a really, really high level. I don't, yeah. think they, I don't think they were going for that here. I think it's sort of two things. One is, um, you know, it's not a main event, but also two, after all the evenness, they wanted to have Walters get a kind of a dominant win because they needed to, um, you know, get him over as a dominant champion. And I thought that actually that worked pretty well. So I thought even though the ending, you know, made the match maybe less good than it could have been, although it was still really good, I uh, I think it was worth it because you want to get Walters over as a strong champion. And I would say, I know you didn't like the Walters-Williams match that much, but I thought it was really good. I thought this match was really good. And I think Walters is on a hell of a run here. 
Yeah, it's interesting too, though, because when you look like this match is a really great way to gauge where these two guys are at and like overness wise at this point in their careers. And like I was kind of surprised where I would say Nigel was the crowd was like at least 60 40 for Nigel in this match when again, he's the guy where he hasn't been a regular. He's been, you know, like semi there, not in any real big matches. And Walters has had pushes that you know it hasn't been we talked about the last show it wasn't consistent he's kind of getting re-pushed now after some time being kind of lost in terms of focus from the booking but like nigel already feels more popular at least on this night than john walters who's supposed to be their pure champ which um I was a little shocked by by how much more. And uh, well, I don't know if Walters though was ever such a huge crowd favorite. You know what I mean? Like no. I, I don't know if they they you know I don't know if they ever totally bought into loving John Walters outside of Boston maybe. So that's probably part of it too. There is kind of a weird thing too where you watch this and like you know clearly obviously they Gabe wants the pure title to get over and be a new secondary title. And, you know, Walters, and he wants Walters to grow with it, probably like Joe grew with the world title. And we knew, we know it doesn't really work out. But it's kind of funny because you're watching this and you're no, watching this match and he's wrestling the guy who's actually going to make the pure title mean something. Like, just, it's way before it actually happens. But it's so weird to watch that. It's like, you you kind of know that you're, you're, Gabe has the answer to his problem, but it's the, it's the wrong guy in the match. It's a... Uh, and I don't know if Nigel would have been ready for that at this point or gone the heel way that really makes the pure title run so so fun. But it is kind of an interesting thing to see. I think I um, think it actually in the end probably worked out the way it was supposed to. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, you were talking, too, about, like, the commentary. I, I thought it was interesting. Punk really sold this match hard. Like, at one point, Punk says that this was the match he was most looking forward to the entire night of any match on the card. He also outright predicts at one point that he thinks Nigel will win this match. Like, you talked about how he was putting over Nigel. He outright, like, goes, like, I think Nigel's going to beat John Walters. And um, Punk, you know, Gabe does those predictions. Punk doesn't do those re- predictions all the time. And... Uh, there was one kind of goofy spot where uh, Nigel throws a back elbow, and from the camera angle, we can see it clearly doesn't come close to a Walter's head, and Walter sells it anyway, like, oh, you got me right in the face, I'm covering up my face, which is like one of the only execution problems, I would say, on this match. And finally, I would just want to ask you, Matt, a question I thought of when I was watching this match, which is, oh, for also, I just want to say, the the end with the stranglehold where he does the the um John Walters does the lung blowers with the stranglehold multiple times and he never lets go of the stranglehold and then he uh just ends it with the body scissors and the stranglehold I actually thought that was so much cooler than just a lung blower like that should have been his finish I thought that was just a really cool finish um but at, I was watching this match and noticing that like a lot of times the announcers would play into the idea of, oh, he's covering him or booting to submission right near the ropes on purpose to make him to use up his rope breaks. And I started thinking, is that a smart strategy or is that kind of like, isn't it still smarter to just try if you don't have to, to pin or put a guy in a hole in the middle of the ring? Like, I think, you know, if you follow the classic wrestling logic, which is you got to wear the guy down first before the hold works. Then it sort of makes sense to just get out, get the rope breaks out of the way early. You know what I mean? If you yeah. think if you think in a more MMA way, which is like a good submission will end a match no matter when you get it on, then I think your logic makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I wasn't sure how I felt, so I, I wanted a second opinion on this, but that that helps helps 
calm my nerves, Matt, because this was the thing that was keeping me up at night lately. This is, I mean, this is the big problem that we have to solve in this generation. Um, yeah. ne- actually, the, on the next episode, we're going to spend a half hour talking about this problem. And then that, that's going to come right after the two hours we spend talking about uh, portable Visa credit card machines. That's right. Uh, got to a promo backstage somewhere else, presumably in a, like, a completely different building because this promo is Jim Cornette making his – I guess in a way his ring of honor return, even though he's not in the building. So in a way you might not want to count it, but he's in this, he's in a classic cornet suit. He's got his de- tennis racket. Uh, Jim says neither he nor ring of honor were happy about the way he left the company. Uh, he mentions the Briscoes firing him, which is how they wrote him out before. And he says he wanted to find a tag team to teach the Briscoes a lesson, but then he learned that the Briscoes are on suspension. Cornette says he's going to reunite the greatest tag team in the history of wrestling because for the first time ever, it's going to be Dennis Condry, Bobby Eaton, and Stan Lane all side-by-side-by-side together. It's going to be in Philadelphia for Ring of Honor. So he's plugging that future thing. And this was, again, Cornette's return to Ring of Honor. Um, One thing that was interesting about this, Matt, was – I feel at this time they were still kind of pushing the Briscoe's feed. Like we've talked about how this – the Briscoe's run in Ring of Honor for the next – couple years or whatever is over but at the time ring of honor didn't know it and i guess they still probably didn't know because when i of the newswires i was able to pull up during this time there's one thing plugging the next show which is the midnight express reunion show which was like gabe was writing something like how will the briscoes react to you know Cornette being in the building and celebrating another tag team so it definitely felt like probably if the briscoes didn't get hurt or weren't on their way out. The plan was probably to have some kind of confrontation. Probably they would get beat down by the midnight express, like on the next show. Yeah. Or they would be down the midnight, but yeah, no, probably they would. Cause the Briscoes were not heels, you know? Yeah. So unless they were planning on a match, I mean, I guess Bobby Eaton was still wrestling at this point, but I don't know if the other guys were. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know what would have happened, but that's interesting. Um, yeah, maybe Gabe can tell us. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting also just because it's weird because Cornet, it's another place where you don't know who's supposed to be a face or a heel, but I assume on the night that's built around celebrating the Midnight Express, on that night, the Midnight Express weren't, were not supposed to be heels. Probably. Well, they were definitely the faces here. Maybe what would have happened would be a reunion between Cornet and the Briscoes as baby faces. Just a big hug and, a, and an apology for a firing. Yeah. Finally, a, a feel-good wrestling storyline. Exactly. Where everyone just works out with words and not fists. Exactly. But we go next to the semi-main event, uh, a Ring of Honor world title match. Samoa Joe successfully te- defends the title yet again. He defeats Doug Williams via pinfall in 17 minutes, 54 seconds after he hits a lariat. Uh, this is a rematch match from Round Robin Challenge 2 in 2003, which is a match that was not I don't think either of us thought it was bad, but we were both disappointed based on how big a fans we were of both guys. Uh, I believe Joe, even in the shoot interview he did for Ring of Honor in 2004, even said that this was at this point in his career one of his biggest disappointments that he he and Doug couldn't have had a better match, at, you know, in 2003. So, how do you feel like? I mean, I don't know if you. It's been so long if you can remember the details on this match, but just knowing that we weren't insanely in love with this match how do you feel this one compares i would say almost exactly the same um like i um yeah i um i actually i thought doug was really good i was disappointed in samoa joe's performance in this match like again i thought the match was solid 
but I thought Joe was very lethargic. He was taking a lot of time in between all of his moves, and he was just, every time Joe was in control, the match slowed down a lot. Um, you know, he's like, he grinds Doug down with arm bars and face locks, but like, he's just doing it very, very slow. Like, you know, he does some big spots. He does the ole ole kick, you know, does an insiguri, but even Gabe at one point mentioned how, how Joe is just like taking his time with follow-up moves. I just, I just noticed a lot of Joe just kind of like sitting around in this match. And like, I hate the, I love Samoa Joe, you know, and maybe this was on purpose. I don't know, but it didn't, to me, it just felt like something was off. You know, Doug comes back later with, like, repeated uppercuts, goes for his running knee. Joe hit the the snap power slam into the arm bar. And I like the spot where Doug, like, clasped his hands together to block the arm bar. Um, Joe, like, he went for a, a power bomb and tries to turn it into the STF, which he does. But Doug actually blocks it with his leg, and I've never seen anyone block that. I love. I thought Doug was great. You know, Joe blocked the chaos theory by holding onto the turnbuckle and... Then, you know, get, Doug gets Joe in a sleeper. And you don't usually see this spot in ROH where, like, Joe's arm drops twice but holds it up the third time. You don't see that. And then Joe gets his leg on the ropes. Also, Joe got Doug in a torture rack at one point, but Doug got out, like, right away. Um, and there were some good near falls, you know. Um, a big lariat by Joe got a good near fall. Doug actually kicked out of the muscle buster, which is freaking insane. I like I didn't even know that was possible. And then Joe just won with a bunch of slaps and lariats. So at the end, the finish was okay. I really was not feeling Samoa Joe tonight, though. I thought the match was still solid. You know, D- Joe's a good wrestler, even at not his best, and Doug is really good. So it's not like it was a bad match at all. Um, but I I was disappointed with it. I'll be honest. Um, I thought this match was very good. I, I, I like this more than you. I thought it was right around, uh, I thought it was at least on par with the last match, which I also liked a little more than you, but, um, I, I, I agree that Joe, like, I think it, in these matches, it's kind of common for Joe sometimes to, um, be a little lackadaisical at sometimes between moments because, and I, but I think it works for Joe because he's a big guy and you know and he, the way he he's kind of a this slow creeping menace at times i think it works but i do agree this match was on the extreme end of that to the point where it was it was it was enough to be noticeable like like you said where the commentary even called it out um i think i like this match just because it was something you don't see in ring of honor too often which was it was kind of a hoss battle like it was two big guys just hitting each other hard quite a bit in this match which and there was real weight behind that kind of stuff that they were doing i agree with you that doug williams was really good in this match doug williams did a couple like flip bumps in this match like there's a moment where he takes a like a I think a corner Uranagi, yeah, where he does the, the move where Joe's in the corner and the guy runs towards him and Joe grabs him and does like the Uranagi. And Doug Williams does a full flip where he like lands on his stomach from it. Or, well, it looked like he landed on his head at first. And then later he he takes another move where um, Joe sweeps his legs. And again, Doug Williams, which is a big guy, does like a forward flip bump and goes from standing on a seat to like flipping forward and landing on his ass. Like Doug Williams, I think, was really trying to avenge that other match where maybe like you said joe maybe a little more tired for some reason i I like that joe broke out the torture rack like you mentioned i uh 
I like that even though technically Williams didn't do the exact same move, I like that he did the rear naked choke, which is kind of similar to Joe's choke. And he did the body scissors with it. And I wrote um, in my notes, if you like body scissors, this is the show for you because this match had body scissors and the last match had body scissors at the finish and like a different body scissors spot in the middle of the match. So quite if, if you like men wrapping their legs around other men, there's a whole line of videos that's really appealing to you, but there's also this show, which is also good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not, I have nothing to add. <laughs> um, there, there was a moment in commentary I want to say. <laughs> Gabe says, if Joe wants to prove the world title is better than the pure title, there's no better way to prove that than by beating the former pure champ, Doug Williams. And I wrote my notes, I can think of one better way <laughs> beating the current pure champ. <laughs> Like, yes. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, I, 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 I do not think this was a great match. And it's one of those things some, where sometimes we, we watch matches like like um, going to the Danielson-Shelley match where we said, oh, this is not the best match these two could have. And you pointed out, you, you said, you know, I've seen a better match these two have. I'm watching this match since it's two times where these guys, which I think we both agree are great, great wrestlers have not had a great match together. Maybe this is just, do you think this is just an example where two guys just don't two great guys that don't click together on a great level? Definitely could be. Yeah, for sure. sure. Um, uh, I also thought like you mentioned the muscle buster kickout. I thought that was a little too much. I realized Doug Williams is the former pure champ, and it's in a way it's really t- nice because it's a sign that Punk, I mean Joe, really respects Doug Williams. But they had just you said you said that that you didn't know that they could do that. But Homicide had just kicked out of the Muscle Buster in their final match like a couple shows ago. Yeah, but like to me, like that's like the end of a feud, and it's Homicide. You know what I mean? Like, like you, like that's sort of like a WrestleMania match, and you could do all, every, you can do anything at WrestleMania, but like in a run of the mill, in a run of the mill title defense, I don't know. But yeah, I, I get. I think actually that's kind of my point, which is you can't play that card too often, and it has to be really special. And while the Homicide one was special enough, it's like when you've just done that, and this isn't really a match on that level. It felt I, I I don't think I would have done had him had a second guy kick out the muscle buster much less like Doug Williams in a match that didn't have that much build up to it. It wasn't even it's not even part of a rivalry. It's like a random like they chose my opponent for me match. And also that's a great I love this because Matt one of the things I hate most like I like I really like doing this podcast with you. Obviously I've devoted countless hours to it. But one of the things I hate is when. I do this podcast and then I find a new tidbit about an old show and I realize I can't put it in the show. So I, I get really mad. Like I get mad at myself and it's frustrating, but this is great. gives me a great example to give a little tidbit to something I missed from Samoa Joe's 2004 shoot interview about an older match because Matt, this match reminded me of that. Did you know that in, in the last match homicide versus uh, Joe, their last match in 2004 against each other, that Joe says that entire finish, including homicide kicking out of the muscle buster and everything that came out of it after it was all thought of by Joe and homicide on the fly as the match was happening. Like Joe did not plan for him to kick out of the muscle buster. Apparently that was just something like in the match. He said, based on like the crowd and what we were doing, like I just made it all up like in, in my head during the match. 
because I, I just felt like that's what we needed. And so a part of me wonders almost if like Joe was doing that here too. Like a lot of times when a big movie gets kicked out, I assume, oh, the Gabe or someone must have told him. But I wonder if like Joe just took into his head like, you know, I like Doug. He's a big name. Like I'm beating him. Let, let me let him kick out on the muscle buster. I guess, I guess, sure. I mean, no reason to think that that couldn't have happened. Yeah. So anyway, I, I enjoyed this match. You know, Joe really puts him over. But there's a couple of other things to talk about with this match, Matt. Well, maybe not even this match, but for some reason, this match sparked a couple of the big newsletter writers to talk about a. Uh, Doug Williams in British wrestling. So I got a couple of quotes that are interesting. The first one, Matt, that I think is the better one, actually, but I won't save it for last, is Wade Keller. Matt, let me read to you something that Wade Keller wrote. Samoa Joe versus Doug Williams has a real chance to be a show stealer. Williams is a fit Finley type wrestler in that he doesn't have a great physique, is low on traditional charisma, and doesn't do flashy high spots, but his European mat style is fascinating to watch. He also carries himself like a badass. Matt, I don't know if I agree with even half of what Wade said there. Um, I mean, I definitely agree that his European mat style is fascinating to watch. Yeah. That but, part I that part I agree with. Uh, doesn't have a great physique. Like, Doug Williams is pretty goddamn muscular. He's yeah. like a brick shithouse. Uh, low on traditional charisma. I don't know if he's the most charismatic wrestler. I wouldn't call him, like... I could name five guys on the Ring of Honor roster off the top of my head with less charisma easily. Yeah, he definitely – he has charisma. He's not like The Rock, but he has charisma. And even doesn't do flashy high spots. He does like top rope knee drops and the Chaos Theory German suplex. Like I I don't like – Sometimes I, sometimes you wonder if these guys are writing about people they haven't actually watched. Yeah, sometimes when – especially when guys like Wade and Bruce talked about Ring of Honor – Sometimes you get the impression that maybe they've watched like five Ring of Honor tapes and some of their opinions are based entirely just on like I've seen Doug Williams wrestle three matches. This is who Doug Williams is like probably not even three. <laughs> yeah. Um, and go- then going to the Observer, Dave wrote uh, on in the wake of this match. The big thing now is the old British wrestling style, particularly Williams, Brian Danielson, and Nigel McGuinness. That's the new thing in the Northeastern Indies that everyone is copying because what's old is new again. Everyone has seen so much of the lucha and hardcore that nobody really cares about it. It's more stiff Japanese and British. John Walters kept the pure title, beating McGinnis via submission in a good technical match. I just saw a tape from about six weeks back, and the British stuff with McGinnis versus Doug Williams is great. So yeah, this is that was another thing that reminded me of the moment we were in, where this was around the time in wrestling. Like I believe going on something you said a show or two ago, I confirmed like Colt Cabana is going on a tour of of Britain, like very shortly after this or maybe even during this time and like this is the time with him and chris hero and a lot of these guys where all of a sudden like british influence is big on the indies for like a good six months to a year yeah i um it was definitely i mean all through 2005 too it was still a trend to the point where at one point at a show in 2005 um there's a european rounds match between nigel mcginnis and colt cabana doesn't go that well, but they do have it. And um, so, yeah, the British style is definitely all the rage in 2004, 2005. Um, I don't know. I like it. I still like it. Yeah, uh, yeah I still do too. But it, it's it's always funny when, like, I feel like wrestling so much more homogenous. You don't get as much of this. But this, you would definitely see, like, oh, like, 
everyone that stayed over at Chris Eero's house must have started watching his Johnny Saint tapes because all of a sudden, like, five guys were doing cravats on every show, you know, like, yes. that kind of thing. Um, so after the match, Williams really sells, struggling to get to his feet. And even when he shakes Joe's hand, he collapses in his arms. Like, Williams was really selling, like, big after this match, like, how badly Joe had kicked his ass which again like i clear clearly both these guys really respected each other and were trying really hard to put each other over um and that leaves us with the main event the ring of honor tag team title four-way elimination ultimate endurance match in case people forgot the ultimate endurance was a a four-team elimination tag match where every fall had a different step. The first fall would always be a submission match. The second fall would be a scramble match. And the third fall would be the uh, vague and nebulous anything-goes match. Um, in this match tonight, the main event, the Havana Pitbulls of Ricky Reyes and Rocky Romero, the champs, defeated BJ Whitmer and Dan Moth, Generation Next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong, and the Carnage Crew of DeVito and Loke in 20 minutes, 25 seconds. The eliminations are as follows. In the submission-only first fall, B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff eliminated the Carnage Crew in 11:17 when Moff and Whitmer made DeVito tap out to, like, a double-team Boston Crab where they each held a leg. Uh, in the second fall, scramble rules. B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff eliminated Generation Next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong in 1346 when Moff pinned Evans after he hit him with a burning hammer. And in the final fall, anything goes. The Havana Pitbulls defeated B.J. Whitmer and Dan Moff in 2025 when Romero pinned Whitmer after hitting a jumping knee strike. Um, Matt, I was ex- I was shocked at how much I liked this match, too. I thought this might have been my match of the show. I might just go four stars, like... Um, wow, four. Uh, I really like this. Um, I was surprised how much I liked the first two falls, which I guess is basically the first two thirds of the match. I felt like everyone was 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 working, knowing it was the main event and trying to live up to that. And I felt the match was um, like there there was it was never like a huge thrill a minute crazy moves every second in the first two falls necessarily but it was every there was always something interesting happening in front of you it was a lot of guys coming in and out and ever you could just tell everyone had their working boots on except and maybe coincidentally my favorite part of the match was the part of the match where the Havana Pitbulls weren't in it very much, which we can talk about that more in a little bit. I thought in particular, uh, the Roderick Strong, Dan Moff sequences were really cool because they just go to town like beating each other up. And I feel like Dan Moff, I've learned from doing the rewatch, is Dan Moff is at his best whenever he faces someone that kind of puts him in a position to just be like a really intense brawl. And I felt like here, I really came away from this wanting to see Strong and Moth just beat the living crap out of each other. Also, also at one point, Moth actually was like manhandling Strong and making Strong's chops look weak almost. And you almost never see Strong look in that position. Almost never. And that was unique and interesting. Yeah, it, it was a really cool, memorable part of the match. Um, the third fall for me, it isn't as good as the first two falls. It kind of, it, it's not bad, but I would describe it as a, the match kind of stutters a little bit at that point. Um, the pit bulls wrestle like they always wrestle, and that's is becoming more of a trend here. On rewatch, the pit bulls run here isn't that great. Like it's like it, it, they feel kind of mechanical, and it feels like they only know how to do the same basic kind of mix of submission of the same submissions, the same strikes. They do a couple cool double teams here. And I guess it, it didn't really affect how good the match was, but if you expected something different, the, this match, um, 
the the three falls the step the way the steps work are kind of goofy because in the submission in one of the first two falls there's a chair shot and Gabe even points out like oh that shouldn't be a that shouldn't it's not the anything goes fall and it's just allowed and then um, the second fall which is the scramble fall match doesn't it only last like a minute or two and it doesn't feel different than any other part of the match and then the third fall which is the anything goes fall match is basically just ba- a regular tag match. Yeah, actually, I, until you said it just now, I didn't even realize that the third fall was anything goes. I thought it was just a regular tag team title match. There's so, r- no weapons in the third fall. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually had no idea that was even supposed to be anything goes. <laughs> yeah, so to me, in terms of just in, in watching the match, it didn't affect my enjoyment. But if you actually thought, if you actually, like, if you sit down and think about it, they didn't really work to the falls. Even the first fall, there wasn't many submission teases until the very end. Not that I am complaining. There was like one or two. It just it made the match. The steps of the match felt meaningless. It felt like the wrestlers barely cared what the steps of the match were. Um, I still like this match quite a bit, and I also fear though that just like I'm worried that the Danielson. Shelly match, I'm a little too hard on it because my expectations were so high. I'm worried that maybe I'm slightly overrating this match because my expectations were, I can't believe this is the main event. And I felt like at least in that respect, it over-delivered. Based on who's in this and the spawn on the card, I I was entertained the whole way through. Speak your truth, Trevor. That's what I would say. Don't worry about whether you over or underrated it. Um, I agree with a lot of what you said. I definitely didn't like the match as much as you. Um, I liked the first fall a lot. Although, you know, immediately, you know, if if these ultimate endurances are really like one size fits all, this is always what the stipulations are. Yeah, I think this is a bad mix of guys to have a tap out match, which is what they called the first round. They didn't even say submission. They said tap out match. And like, these are not the guys that you want to see. These are not the teams that you want to see a tap out match for, right? Honestly, the concept of a tag team submission match feels ridiculous to me in the first place. Um... Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's a whole, especially when you consider in these ultimate endurance ones. It was the first fall, and the problem with submissions is like, it's just, there's just something weird about like a bunch of guys watching a, another guy in a submission hold. Yeah, like it, it just seems weird. Exactly. Um, but um, you know, I brought up like the, some of the highlights of the fall already, which I thought was like, Moth making Strong look weak and that stuff. I did like um, you know like Div- um, B J Whitmer. There was a like there was a heat spot with him where basically everybody gets to beat up B J Whitmer. Even Evans gets to do like some of his wacky kicks on B J. And Roderick Strong actually tries to do a submission on B J with a necktie. Of course, Moth breaks it up like immediately. Um, there was one cool spot where Roderick does like a wheelbarrow onto Evans and flips him onto Whitmer. That was good. So eventually, um, I guess, so I guess BJ and what Whitmer and Moff are like the de facto faces. Like keep in mind, they have not been really faces for very long. Yeah. But they, because of the Foley feud. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess Carnage crew are technically faces, but they're feuding with the other faces. So it's like, that's confusing. Obviously the Pitbulls and, uh, the Generation Next are heels. Um, I'd say Whitmer, after he does a, an exploder onto Loki, gets like, oh, what I would call a warm tag to Moff. Um, <laughs> they didn't really build up enough drama for it to be a truly hot tag. But, you know, I like that the Moff came in, House of Fire, hurled Evans onto Strong and DeVito, and the crowd chanted, ole, 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 for some reason when that happened. Um, I don't know if they thought Joe was going to come out. Um, but um, I like that, that um, you know, 
Uh, he uh, Loke kind of gets like the like a front face lock choke, and Moff tries hard to break it up, but Loke just like flicks it away. Like like Moff basically um, has has a chair basically, and he, he throws it at Loke. Loke just throws the chair behind him, so Moff has to hit him again in the head really hard, and this time it does break it up. I don't know if that was planned or if Loke just decided, eh, that hair chair shot didn't look good enough. He has to do another one. But if I was a wrestler, I probably would not be like, you know what, I should get hit in the he- head with the chair again. Um, they the actually second one was hard. I believe Punk called it like one of the hardest chair shots he'd ever seen. It was yeah, brutal. I know it's crazy. Yeah. Um, Moff and Whitmer actually they actually hit like almost a concerto on Devito's knees because remember Devito has a bad knee from earlier. They kind of play that in, and then they hit the double Boston Crab on Devito for the tap out. And Gabe says he's never seen Devito tap before, and you know probably not. Although I am not keeping track of. How DeVito loses matches. I don't... You can say a lot of things about DeVito, and I will just take it. Your, I will just take your word for it. Yeah, I'm not paying. You can tell me like that's the 18th time he submitted from. I'll be like, yeah, okay. exactly. I I believe it. Um, um, yeah, but like you said, they were bare. I thought that was the best fall, but they were barely any submissions. It was mostly just a brawl. I was actually pretty disappointed in the scramble because it was just so short. Like I thought, okay, this is when Evans is going to get to really shine. This is when we're strong and the pit bulls are going to get to have some good stuff. But they didn't really even do a full scramble. I guess they were rushing maybe because of the curfew. Um, yeah. But like strong, you know, like strong got his backbreaker and a half Nelson suplex. The pit bulls double team moth, but Evans hits like a springboard drop kick and then goes for a springboard 450 to the floor. But Moth and Whitmer both move away and Evans just like splats on the floor. And so Moth can hit the burning hammer. Um, and then basically what you said with the regular match, it's just the pitfalls kept the pitfalls kind of be in the pitfalls. Um, Rocky at one point takes Moth to the outside and just like puts him in a headlock and walks him basically all around the ring, which is a spot that I always hate. You know, that was like WWF attitude era brawling where you got a guy in a headlock and you just like walk him down the rampway, you know, and it's just like, yeah. You can do that for like a few couple feet, but when you're walking with somebody in your headlock for like a really long time and it doesn't even look like an intense headlock or that you're struggling, to me that seems silly, especially because the payoff was just he threw Moff into the guardrail. Like, it's a spot that literally only entertains the front row. Exactly. And it just it just looks corny. I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, Reyes does some German roll, rolling German suplexes to BJ, and BJ takes like some very enthusiastic bumps. Like, he is just, like, jumping, like, as high as he can. He's, like, almost like, I almost imagine him going, wee, every time, every time he does it, gets German suplexed. Um, but, um, yeah, the pit bulls, they hit the double guillotine knee on BJ. Moff makes the save. Um, Gabe actually says that Smokes was dumped with a huge backdrop on the floor by Moff, but we don't see it. Which I almost am like, if we miss a spot like that, you might as well just not mention it. Like, I don't did did we see that spot and I just missed you know, it? I was going to mention that that is a huge part, of, uh, actually a flaw in this match, which is um, Moth and and Reyes. The whole finish of the match is is Romero and Whitmer having like an extended like striking battle, and that Romero wins with the jumping high knee, and then he gets the win. But during that whole time. Moff and Reyes are having a brawl on the floor we, that takes them both out of the match. We don't see it, and multiple times Gabe's like, oh, uh, Moff just backdropped uh, you know, um, Julius Smokes. And, oh, you know, you hear spots like, oh, Moff's just been taken out or whatever, and you don't see any of it, like not even in the background. 
Yeah, it's weird. And, like, they do have multiple cameras, so I don't know what the deal is with that. But, um, yeah, I, I honestly do think they probably should have just not even mentioned Smokes if they were going to do that. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But it was weird. Um, I did like that um, they did an homage to the first Glory by Honor because there was a slap exchange with um, Romero and BJ where Whitmer takes off his pads. Like, cause if you remember, there was a big spot in that match where they take off their pads, they take off their wrist tape and they just beat the crap out of each other. I will say this. BJ strikes do not look as cool as Cho's or Loki's <laughs> or Rocky Romero's. I'll be honest. Um, but, um, BJ did get a couple of actually surprisingly big, like near fall pops. He got a surprise roll up on Romero and the crowd really bought that. Then he I hit an explosion. How loud that was. Yeah, it was crazy. Then he hit us, then he hit us exploder, which also the crowd bought pretty well. But after that whole strike exchange, Romero just took him down with a big kick and a knee to the head and got the win that way. Um, I feel like maybe the Pitbulls need a more exciting finish. I don't know. Um, but the crowd really booed the win. They really wanted Moff and Whitmer to me. To, excuse me, to win. But I will say I did enjoy that match more than the first Ultimate Endurance. I didn't like it as much as you, but it was a good match. I thought it had direction. I thought it was tight. I thought it was all action. So I can't complain too much. Um, it was good. That's how I would say it was a good. It was a good way to end the show. I don't remember Moff and Whitmer being this hugely over tag team, but it felt like on this night, if they had won, like the crowd would have been pretty excited to see it this might have been their like their most overnight as baby faces honestly so it's kind of sad that they kind of missed their window here not that i thought think they would have been on like a huge run if they won on this night but this probably was the night if you really were wanting to push them as the champs in hindsight this probably was the night to do it yeah um i wouldn't have guessed that before the match but when you watch the match and you just listen to the crowd you're like oh they're 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 ready for this they want Uh, this especially when you're positioning moff as the big american hero yeah, and he's about to be part of this feud with Foley where they'll be doing tag matches as, like, the surrogates for Foley and Steamboat and things like that. Like, yeah, why why not put the belts on? But, um, yeah, just looking over at my notes, I thought Evans, for the time he was in, he just did so much crazy Evans stuff. Like, like you, the Beal throw where Moth throws him over the top rope into the crowd of wrestlers I thought was an awesome spot. Evans does a willing crash and burn spot where he does a big dive to the floor that Moth and Whitmer just avoid. And it's like on purpose. So Evans is just like, yeah, I'll do this. I'm willing to do this. He's fucking insane. And of course he takes the burning hammer. I even like, I, it's the little things with Jack Evans. I love, there's a point where, um, I, someone blind tags, Jack Evans, like he's not seeing it. He's not looking at the guy and the guy slaps Evans on the back to tag him in. And Evans like sells that he's in pain from the blind tag. And like, <laughs> I fucking love Jack Evans. He's so cool. And, um, then near the end, there's Moth does his big tope, tope on Reyes, and he basically overshoots Reyes and basically crash and burns in a, in a respect that isn't like uh, on purpose. And this is pro- this wouldn't surprise me if this was a match where people got legit like busted up a bit and hurt on, especially when you consider again, this was a hardwood floor with no real coverings on. Uh, yeah, so at the after the match, um, Danger runs, Allison Danger runs to ringside again and she grabs the mic. She begs the, the Havana pit bulls to finish the job on Moth and Whitmer. She says she has money. She'll pay them to do it. Uh, the pit bulls and smokes continue their beat down as the crowd chants for Foley. So they already see where this is going. Uh, the embassy and generation next run back into the ring to also put their boots to Moth and Whitmer, getting revenge for 
Moth and Whitmer running them all off earlier. Finally, Foley comes out to the ring with a fire extinguisher, filling the ring with all the fire extinguisher smoke, powder, whatever it is. Uh, Gabe says it's a tribute to the firemen on September 11th, which kind of makes cringe. Uh, uh, Moth and Whitmer recover a- after this. All the smoke clears. Literally, they make a comeback. They clean house as Foley cheers them on and kind of directs traffic. Uh, Foley then gives Rave a low blow, which gets revenge for earlier in the night. And then he hits him with a double arm DVT, which, Matt, to show you how like bad my memory and how long ago the show was, I was like, oh, Mick Foley can't do spots anymore. But I realized, oh, it's 2004. But it was like a surprise to see, like, oh, he was still able to leave his feet and it didn't take him an hour to get to his feet because he wasn't completely crippled in his life by yeah this point. right he had like a, a really really amazing match of the year candidate against randy orton just that same year yeah um where he so, did like where he did a big jump off a rampway yeah yeah that, that was you know legit one of the best matches of foley's career even and definitely in my opinion the best match randy orton to this day has ever had but I, I, I mean, I, I'd have to think about it, but probably. <laughs> um, I, I will say what's interesting is they really put Whitmer and Moff over a lot here. Multiple times on this show, they ran off like lots of guys. Like if, even that first time that Foley came out, like they like basically ran off like a ton of people as they were um, as they were attacking and stuff. It's like um, just they ran the, off two stables by themselves. Yeah, I almost was like, why is everyone leaving? It's just two guys. But hey, just two guys, and they're having a good time. <laughs> that's a great reference I, I know that reference yeah guy number one <laughs> um, <laughs> um but you know this was a good this is this is the kind of ending where it, it's just like you know the kind of crowd pleasing it's not gonna hype you up super for the next show but it's just that kind of and it's classic Gabe where Gabe's good about like you start an angle on a show and you kind of tie it up at the end so like the full circle thing of Jimmy Rave gets the low blow early in the show and then Foley gets his revenge right at the very end like it's just that very simple but satisfying kind of we set something up and then we immediately within the show pay it off little story exactly um so there's a part, though, that Matt, that didn't make tape, and we'll go to a PW Insider, Mike Johnson's live report. Mike Johnson writes, Foley said that he had an, this is something that didn't make, again, didn't make tape. Foley said that he had an admission to make. This is something he said after that segment we just described, and that was he didn't do anything tonight. He asked the fans to give a big round of applause to for everyone who worked the show and the fans shared Ring of Honor. They played Foley's old theme music, Born to be Wild, to close the show. Mike Johnson writes a fun ending. I love like Mick Foley is basically in some ways the wrestler version of us where his way of giving compliments to other people is to put himself down. Cause I like an earlier in the show, he was basically his whole way of putting over ring of honor was to say that like these guys are giving it all the way I wasn't doing in WWE. And now even here at the end, he's like, I have to remind you guys that like Ashley didn't really do anything in terms of work tonight. Like, it's just very fully to, yeah, to do cla- things that way. Classic, endearing self-deprecation, as opposed to our version, which is just annoying and self-pitying. <laughs> exactly. You see, you see, you see what I did there. <laughs> That's our way of putting it. Nah, that, that 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 put that on the best of through the years. I I, I almost spoiled it by explaining it when it's obvious, but. Like, <laughs> That is the best. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, I also wanted to mention on that. Anyone who's editing the non-existent through the years wiki, add next to a 
the Trevor Dame's uh, uh, suggest, the Dame suggestion. The Dame suggestion earlier. Matt's uh, the, the the entry for Matt's warm tag because <laughs> that's a good one too. Um, so we cut to special K backstage. Warm, warm tag sounds disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cut the special K backstage. Lacey tells everyone to shut up. They're all talking and arguing. Uh, she's pissed that they let Dunn and Marcos call her a hoe earlier and that they lost their match. Uh, Lacey tells them to defend her honor and kick their asses right now. Dixie says they need to just let those guys chill out. And most of the special K leave with Lacey. They don't agree with Dixie. And they leave with Lacey, except for Becky, Dick, Dixie, and Angel Dust. So the battle lines in the big special K intra-group intra war continuing to be set. I also should notice that Derange was part of the special K crew, and we have not seen Derange in in a while. Pa- have we seen him even since uh, the uh, Scramble Cage back in March? I, I, I don't think so. He had that little following, falling out, and then he came back where they said, oh, he'll never work there again. And then he came back for Scramble Cage, and then I think, yeah, I think he's been gone again, hasn't he? Yeah. So Derange is back. Um, On the heel I- side of special K, the Lacey t- side. Lacey's Angels, if you will. <laughs> We cut to somewhere else backstage where we see a close-up of a brutal, big, long red abrasion on Alex Shelley's shoulder. At first, I almost thought it was like a cut. Uh, it's followed by the camera pans, and we see a red, the red roughed-up chests of the other three members of Generation Next. I gotta uh, say, that there was something about this, this that just seemed different from most wrestling promos in the way it was framed. Something, <laughs> I don't know, just like a, a long, slow pan of a bunch of young men's chests. <laughs> I'm just, listen, I'm not saying it's bad or good or anything. It just, it just is. Careful, Matt. You're going to throw all the good work we made at the top of the show go to waste. Uh, no, 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 no. It's not, it's not a complaint. <laughs> no. It's just, it's just noticeable. That's all. Yeah. Um, Shelly says tonight they came up empty handed. They didn't win a single match tonight and they got their asses kicked. Shelly admits that. Shelly says tonight was the start of something else, though, which was Steve Carino interjecting himself into their business. Shelly says they'll send Carino packing back to zero one. And then Aries does get to talk again. Another moment tonight, an early example of him getting a little bit of mic time. And he points out that they put Cabana on the shelf already. And he says the war has just begun. I should have said, has chest begun? Um, <laughs> we, we cut, and then finally to end the show, we cut to ringside after the show where Lacey's half of Special K ambushed Dunn and Marcos as they're taking down the ring with the rest of the ring crew. They beat him down as Lacey cheers them on. And that is how we end the show with the Dunn and Marcos beat down by Special K. And that do, do you think, I was going to say, do you think that they should have worked more on ending the shows with like, the more major stuff. Cause like there's been a lot of shows over through the years where they're just like, here, have this lower card angle and have that be the last thing that we see. Like, do you think they should avoid doing that? Or do you think it's fine? I don't think it's the most major problem, but I probably would try and end like, especially when you consider the last thing people see you want, ring of honor was a DVD product. They were trying to sell DVDs. You want something that's really going to like, I have to buy the next show. And if you, the ending note of the show is, I don't know how many people are going, I, it's, it's cool. I would like to see it, but how many people are going to end the show going, I have to buy the next show because I have to see where Dunn and Marcos versus the, the special K goes. Like, yeah, you generally would want to end probably if I was running it, not to say I could do a better job, but end with a juicier hook for the next show than that. Probably. E- even just the, the generation X promo. It's like, at least it's top card guys. But, um, that said, as far as like complaints go, it's pretty minor. And like, 
uh, for this show, I almost feel like bad about recent shows that I have had so little to complain about. Like I almost feel like I'm dull in my analysis. Like ROH has just been good lately. The booking has been good. The matches are usually good. The the you know the things that the 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 things that are wrong with it are minor. Um, this was a good show. It just like was good. Like that's pretty much all I can say about it. It wasn't the certainly wasn't the biggest show in ROH history. It certainly didn't have any matches of the year. It certainly you know none of that. It's just like a really good entertaining wrestling show with good wrestling up and down the show and logical sensible booking i thought this was a show where uh i i also agree it was a good show i I, and i agree with the problem i've been struggling with too which is how many matches can we just say it was good you know it's easy to talk about saying when it's amazing a match or a show and it's amazing um, easy to talk about saying when it's really bad but when it's just consistently hitting like three and a half stars, three and three quarter, like match after match. And even the bad stuff's like three stars. It gets hard to just give the same answer over again. of like, Oh yeah, that was good. But it really, ring of honor really was hitting just this amazingly, this, a really great level of depth where it was almost impossible. Even when things weren't quite clicking to not be at least good. And, um, the show didn't have anything amazing that you need to go out of your way to see. And I thought, to me, that uh, two of the matches on paper I was most looking forward to, the Aries Punk and uh, Daniel Shelley match, were a little bit disappointing. You know, Aries uh, Punk, more than a little disappointing. And I, and I actually liked the last the couple of the matches better than I expected. And we differ on that. But I think overall our opinions come meets in the middle, which is it's a good show. I felt like they did a first show with no title changes. I think they did a fairly good job of making it seem like a major special show between the Foley thing and um, and Carino's surprise return. Like they gave you a couple big things that made it feel like you're getting a little bit over and above. And yeah, the, the Ring of Honor is just on a real hot streak. It's going to be interesting to see when, if and when that ends and how, like where – it feels like even on a show like the Scramble Cage Melee, where we both agree was probably one of Ring of Honor's lesser shows of the year, they're, they're, they've gotten to a point where even when, the, when things don't click, it's still good. Yeah, and we're about to enter October of 2004, which, spoilers, has two matches that are considered two of the best matches in ROH history. One in particular, but the main event of the next show, which I'm sure you'll plug in a minute is one of my personal all-time favorite matches, and I'm very interested to see how well it holds up. And the other one that we're talking about comes in about a few shows, which is the second CM Punk vs. Samoa Joe 60-minute draw, which is probably as much as any match, um, a match that really set Ring of Honor to great, to as the, you know as, as high as it could have gone at that time. So... I don't think we're going to be seeing the hot streak come to an end anytime soon. I think things are actually going to get a little better for a while. And, and just just to um, like to really put a point on that, we're the next show we'll be covering is you know we always do them in order is early October. So here's some of the stuff you're going to see in the last three months of 2004 Ring of Honor. You're going to see Brian Danielson versus Samoa Joe on the next show. You're going to see CM Punk versus Samoa Joe two more times in critically beloved matches. You're going to see Aries versus Joe in the big title change match. You're going to see Danielson versus Jushin Liger. You're going to see um, Low-Key come back. He's going to do have a match that I remember people really liking with Jay Lethal. You're going to see him in a tag match with Danielson, Joe, and Liger. You're going to see him wrestle Danielson in a, in a rematch of the one of the greatest matches in Ring of Honor history, which... 
that one we'll 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 see how it holds up the rematch but the point is all of these matches are in the next three months of chronological time yeah um you know even even some sleeper matches that i remember i'm really looking forward to seeing how that that submission match between alex shelley and jimmy jacobs on the next chicago show holds up so many years later it's going to be quite a run. I mean, it was quite a run, and it's going to be quite a run for this. There's really only one show in that whole mix over the next few months that even would be considered a B show, I would say, yeah. uh, um, which is ROH Gold. Um, but the rest of them are like A-plus shows, and um, yeah, it's going to be crazy. Matt, it's the one thing in our lives right now that's actually on an upswing. <laughs> like, everything else in life feels like the, a dark era, but... The, the we finally Matt gotten to what is like a golden era for the stupid wrestling podcast we do. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been a golden era. I mean if you've watched yeah. the listen to the last few podcasts, I mean really since um this generation next, right? It's just been like one good show after another, basically. And um yeah, I don't think the next one's gonna change that. I am so looking forward to reviewing Danielson against um Samoa Joe. You have no idea. I can't wait either. And so it's nice to be able to be positive about something. So yeah. that brings us to the end of the show. Plugs. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, where I've been grumpy lately, at Trevor Dame at, on Twitter, and Matt is at Mayor MGF. We have an email if you want to contact us via email. That is through the years at gmail.com. As always, through is spelled T H R O H. Uh, there's a thread on the pro wrestling only message board where in the plug section, just for our podcast, if you prefer to contact us there, I have a Patreon that I mentioned earlier, www.patreon.com slash Mecca Mecca. And it feels honestly, um, unless you have a lot of money right now, you know, there's way better. I mean, there's always better uses of your money than my Patreon, but it feels really gauche to ask for subscribers when there's so much more you could donate. If you're absolutely rich and you've already donated to other good causes and you have more money to throw away, maybe then uh, someone quit paying subscribing this month because I complained about Jackson Riker defending Donald Trump. So there's an opening. Um, But other than that. Uh, that is the show next time as we've already basically given away uh, me in particular it, we will be covering the Midnight Express reunion show which is famous for a big time finally after they've teased it for in a way teased it for maybe like upwards of a year Brian Danielson versus Somo Joe for the Ring of Honor world title plus the return of Jim Cornette with the big Midnight Express reunion Plus, I believe that's uh, is that the show where uh, Loki and J- comes back and wrestles Jay Lethal? I think so. Anyway. It is. It definitely is. Yes. So big show. Can't wait to review that. I hope you guys hopefully took something positive away from the start of the show, and I hope the three hours that followed, or two and a half, or whatever it was, gave you a chance to take a break from it. Be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Try and understand each other. Keep fighting in any way you can. And thank you guys so much for listening. We'll be back. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.